Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 6 of Alohomora for July 1st, 2012. Okay guys, welcome to another new episode of Alohomora. We have a special guest host this week, but first, I'm Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Kat Miller. And I want to welcome that special fan guest. It's Steve Vanderark, the writer and creator of the Harry Potter Lexicon. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since writing the Lexicon, uh, you know, a few years ago. You mean writing the Lexicon website? Right. Um, well, I'm still writing the Lexicon website because that never ends. But uh, aside from that... Um, Basically working on, I have a podcast that I'm doing now, which is the Lexicon podcast, which is kind of like this one, just digging into canon because, you know, that's the best. Yeah. It is the best. I agree. And, and, you know, writing, writing a couple of books and things like that. But I'm just excited to talk about the books. Always talking about the books. Yep. And you're a school teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In my spare time. Which means that's all I do from September right. through uh, through uh, May. But yeah, school teacher in in Texas and uh, Harry Potter geek in the summer. No, do you bring perfect. Do you bring Harry Potter into your um, your classes at all? I don't really. They're second graders, so they don't even know who Harry Potter is. So, but uh, which is sad. You know? That is sad. Because back in the day, everybody you know second graders all were itching to be able to read the books. So, right. But it's it's changing. Yep. Well, part of the reason for the show is to get fans like reoriented with reading a book series with, you know, thousands of others. Sure. So, you know, maybe oh. some younger people could listen to this show and like maybe listen to you mm-hmm. and follow along with us again. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. And, and there's that's the thing about the Harry Potter books is that every time, I mean, how many times haven't we read these and we still find new things, new things to talk about, new ideas. I'll listen to the audiobooks and I'll grab a sheet of paper and quick write something down that never struck me before. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like it constantly happens. And it's yeah. not that many book series that you just never run out of things to explore and discover. And it's like they're, I don't know, magical or something. <laughs> yeah, it happens to us all the time on the show. We know exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. 
So we're, we're kind of hoping you're going to help us out big time when we go through chapters 13 and 14 today. Oh, I'm, that's, they're fascinating chapters, yeah. sometimes for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Well, we'll get there pretty shortly. <laughs> so yeah, before we do that, we do want to do a quick recap of, last, of our last episode, which I unfortunately was not around for, but I'm definitely happy to be back. So recapping chapters 11 and 12, um, we're going to go through a couple of the comments and um, just give a couple of thoughts to those. So first off, we have a comment from someone on the forums, uh, usernames Cities Sun. If I mispronounce that, I apologize. But this was on our discussion about chess pieces. And this user says, chess pieces seem like basic programming. They can respond to the game because it is a fixed field of play and a limited number of moves. They can respond within their narrow band of knowledge with what are likely a fixed set of responses, much like a computer can be programmed to speak, but not to think independently. Yeah, this was in regards to my question I brought up. Uh, seeing the chess pieces, wizard chess pieces, they're alive. That, that might be a direct quote from the book, or it was something to that effect. And it seemed like they could talk to people who were leading them. Like this would be if, uh, if you know two kids are playing chess they could have a conversation with their pieces as they send them out. Like, I think there was one line in the books where one of the pieces was telling Harry, no, don't send me, send him. We can afford to lose him. So that kind of, like, you know, speech made me think that are these are these creatures sentient? Are these chess pieces actual, like, trapped souls in a, in a children's game forced to fight each other? And this is one response. And I mean, yeah, I, I think that comment makes sense. It's more like a... Like a video game where it's kind of programmed into the the pieces and they're not alive, but this is all they can think about. And I like it. That makes sense. Yeah. The game is their world for sure. But I think like they couldn't talk about something outside of the game is what we said. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you guys pretty much covered it. Um, So thanks. Thanks for that. That that great comment. And um, we got another one. So this was something I, this discussion, I really enjoyed um, listening back, even though I wasn't on the show, the topic of um, Halloween and how it's not really discussed as much um, as far as the spirit world um, interacting more closely on this um, traditional pagan holiday. And this came from um, Cassandra1447 on the forums. Um, and she says, what if Lily's sacrifice was so powerful, partially because it was made on Halloween? If it's the day when the veil between the dead and the living is the thinnest, it might make sense that Lily's protection of Harry could continue even after she died. So I thought well, that was know pretty interesting. Did that ever, anyway, yeah. Yeah, there's I something mean, about uh, pagan, uh, you know, the pagan religion of the of the woman as the highest kind of character isn't there isn't femininity very strong in in a pagan myth it is yes very much so that's you know that's a really great comment i mean that makes sense that it i mean we know it was powerful anyway but maybe the fact that it was made on halloween just makes it all the more so gave it that special boost yeah the uh the the love juice right extra love juice yeah yeah but I don't know. It being Halloween, though, and, and you know this particular comment saying that the spirit world is closer to the to the living world. I mean, her magic was done when she was alive, so I don't know if. But it was spirits... sealed when she died. Right. All right. So so maybe. But I don't think she was evoking spirits of the of the of the underworld in this process. She wasn't, or spirits from anything outside of the real world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, but I do think that, I don't know, I would like to think that it, I mean, JK probably, I mean, she picked this holiday for a reason, so, I mean, maybe this is it. Makes sense to me. It's, and and I, think, I mean, it strengthens it in some way. I don't know. And I think Halloween, in her way of looking at it, symbolizes the fact that the muggle world and the wizarding world tend to be together closer. And we also see magic often through the series being dependent on full moons and uh, right. things like that, which is why they study astronomy. And so I can easily imagine that even if she wasn't thinking of the specific aspects of Halloween as a pagan holiday in our world, just the fact that Halloween is a connection point for magic, um, yeah. th- that that would be somehow make magic more powerful. I think it's right. a really good thought. Yeah, I really like that point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. So that's, yeah, that's really cool, actually. And it really helps with the problem that we keep running into is that, well, does that mean every time somebody dies for somebody else, there's this magic that happens? And it seems like like this is it such an unusual... Well, yeah, this seems like such a huge magical effect. Now, you do have to have spells that follow it up, but even so, such a huge magical effect to, to have happen just from a sacrifice. And I'm not trying to belittle the sacrifice, but that's got to happen more often, right? Steve, I want to hear your opinion real quick about this. I've been thinking sure. about that that sacrifice a lot, mm-hmm. and I feel as if, you know, there's some myth in the fandom that Lily knew some intense charms work, and that went into her sacrifice and her protecting Harry. But I think she might not have done anything. She might I not even even been aware of the effect, and she just, you know, sacrificed herself. And I, it was I, simply the act that did it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, I, I think that that, you know, if you look at it story wise. I think that Lily was reacting from a purely gut level as a mother. And, right. and you can say that any mother would, would have that, hopefully, that sense of wanting to protect your child. And I think, and, and not to, I, my idea of Lily is that that selflessness, no, I did, she didn't think through some magic in that moment. She just basically defended her child. That's the way I look at it anyway. Right. And then I believe Harry, you know, it said Harry does the same thing for everybody at the end. And then the mm-hmm. same spell goes into effect. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and know. interesting because I don't see anybody casting that subsequent magic. Which I was just thinking that, happen. yeah, mm, yeah. But I guess you know, Harry's Harry is in this state at that point of almost de- complete detachment from the world, from the wizarding world, from everything. He he is uh, transcended mundane reality at that point course mundane reality being the wizarding world full of all sorts of magical stuff but right. <laughs> you know he is he is his very existence has altered almost at that point so well it's the it's the epic story story arc mm-hmm. in which the character goes through and he, le- he introduced to the new world and then he leaves the new world and he must lead it or he must you know mm-hmm. right but uh, anyway we will we'll touch on all that in a few years when we get to deathly hollows <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So our next comment comes from um, our usual contributor, Snape Escape, from the forums. And um, the comment says, How long has Filch been in Hogwarts? And would he have been caretaker when Snape was still a student? Apollyon Pringle was caretaker until about 1973, when he was replaced by Argus Filch. Severus Snape attended school from 1971 to 1978, so Filch must have started in his third year. We know they probably both felt like outsiders, Snape because of Potter and Filch because he was a squib. And maybe they built up something resembling a friendship based on their mutual feelings of rejection. And I'm almost willing to bet that Snape Escape did that research on possibly the Harry Potter lexicon. So Yeah, I really think, yeah. 
But yeah, that's where I'd do it. Yeah, that I mean (laughs) that makes sense. What other reason would they have to be, you know, friends in this first book here? I mean this this would explain the situation where you have Snape and Filch, you know, treating Snape's wound in the staff room. Yeah. Kind of an odd two people to do that. Very odd. Especially when we hear that Madame Pomfrey's very good at not telling about injuries and you know, making a big fuss about it. She's very good at at her, you know, patient uh, confidentiality stuff. We find that out with Ron in another couple of mm-hmm. chapters. So, right. yeah, but she probably has no idea what's beyond the trap door. So that's, that's probably true. why they kept her out of it, right? Yeah, probably. And I mean, nobody actually right. talks to Filch, so he can really keep a secret. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's but also, except Madame Pince. Yeah, yeah. wow, well, my one true pairing. But um, <laughs> I. I don't know. I just still, I feel, I'm really hesitant to say that Snape, like, considers Filch a friend. I mean, that's, I can definitely see him as someone that he would, like, maybe rely on, but I still have, yeah, maybe a temporary ally, more than an acquaintance, but I still think that Snape doesn't really, I don't think he likes anyone, really. I mean. Well, he's a Slytherin. He wouldn't like a squib. Well, that that's also very true. But I, I don't know. I think that sort of mindset would have been changed by his relationship with Lily, especially like the way their relationship broke off when they were in school. Um, I mean, we know that Umbridge inevitably uses Filch as a tool to kind of organize things around around the school. But so, yeah. I think Snape and Snape and Filch just kind of both sort of know they equally want to make students have a hard time, maybe. Yeah, well, and, and Snape's a leader. He's a he's a pusher, and you know Filch is very impressionable. So, I I could see that being. He enjoys that. Yeah, exactly. Well, also on that note, though, I mean, they both do. I mean, I would say it's it's, it's I would say it's that it's safe to say they both definitely care about the safety of the school. I mean, Filch obviously, like as hard as he is on the students, does care a lot about you know the protection of the school. We see that coming up a lot, and so maybe that's. You know, the basis for at least this alliance at this point, because, you know, they're trying to protect the school. I don't know. And I think maybe we're putting too much of an equal footing on there. I think Snape, if you think about the way he acts, he probably orders Filch around. True. You know, come here, do yeah. this for me. I've been given, he doesn't tell him that he's supposed to be taking care of Harry or whatever, but he'll order Filch around. Yeah. And, and Filch will do it because he's, yeah, he's exactly. absolutely a fanboy. Oh, yeah. Did you call him a fanboy? I did. Filch is a fanboy. <laughs> and see, and, but you can also, you, when you when you do the other level, step out of the story and look back on it, you can see, okay, why did she put that together? It was because the whole thing is trying to make Snape look bad. And we and already so she, associate Filch she's, with bad. Right, so. and so she's writing this as one more way to, to, to lead us off the track and think that Snape is doing something bad. So everything that you run into, you have to look at as, as stepping out of the story as well and say, why did Rowling do that? Why did she put that in here? And, and, and that would be why is because, you know, she wants to give as many bad connections to Snape as possible so that we go through the whole book assuming that Snape is bad. Yeah. Right. Very we true. Try to, we try to do that on the show a lot. You know, <laughs> the multiple levels of understanding mm-hmm. of the Harry Potter series. Mm-hmm. Even though we all know it's real. Oh. Oh, of, of course. course. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> so another great comment comes um, also about a holiday, this time though about Christmas. And it comes from Lumos Night 3 on our forums. And um, this user says, In France, there is a similar tradition done at Christmas that involves hiding small items in food. My memory on this might be a bit hazy, so if anyone has more accurate details, please share. 
But I believe that what happens is that a cake called king cake is made in a small trinket, hopefully a crown, is hidden in one of the slices, and who, whomever finds it is made king for the day and has various rights and spe special privileges to carry out. I would just like to say that if this is true, I want that crown always. <laughs> this was about the uh, the coin that Percy finds in his turkey? I right. believe so, yeah. yeah. The no, 50p. In the, pudding. in the pudding. Is it pudding? pudding. Mm -hmm. It's Christmas pudding. Yeah. Oh. And yeah, of course, pudding, mean, pudding means dessert, not literal pudding. But. Right. Right. Yeah, we had, a, we had a few comments about this, and you know, we're trying to look at the symbolism, and what we ended up coming up with is that... Uh, Draco Malfoy would be having a real good time if he saw all these Weasleys finding various coins in different places. <laughs> As Ron gets really excited in an earlier chapter about the 50 pence piece. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty symbolic to, to find a coin there. It's a tradition. And also someone brought up a Louisiana tradition. Um, I'm not sure if it's also called a king cake, but you know, during the holiday you find money. During Mardi Gras. Yeah, Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras yeah. has king's cake, yeah. So that's pretty cool. But why does this happen to Percy? What was Joe doing? Or nothing at all. Yeah, you're assuming you're assuming that that was an intentional. If it was a crown, I'd say it's, you know, because he wants to be in the ministry. But right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But well, it, might, it might not have been intentional, but you never know. Maybe foreshadowing that he's going to be kind of successful. He's going to be mm -hmm. a successful Weasley. Yeah, but then you'd think she'd have given it to Fred and George, but... That's but then true. again, you know, everything doesn't mean something. You know? No, that's very true. Yeah. Very so true. There's always Mark Evans at the beginning of book five. That we spent oh years trying to parse that one out. Yeah. Turns out, true. oh, I just threw that in there. Never dawned on me. It's like, seriously? So many dead ends. Oh. Well, thank you for sharing for that tradition. Definitely uh, interesting to hear about. Uh, and our next comment comes from Live Laugh to Love, or excuse me, Live Laugh Love to Read HP on our forums. And it says, from now on, you are the ACPA, which this person has named the Animal Cruelty Police of Alohomora. <laughs> I was Great. listening to Sheriff Noah, which I am so glad this person has dubbed Noah the Sheriff. <laughs> so listening to Sheriff Noah of the ACPA talking about the owls flying in the snowstorm, and I was thinking, Birds fly in storms all the time. When birds migrate, they have to fly south so that they do not die. And if there is a storm, they are not just going to stop. They are going to keep going so that they can get to a warmer place. I think it would be more dangerous for the owls to wait the storm out in a tree. They uh, they were smarter to fly. All right. I mean, if you want to send your owls into snowstorms, be my be my guest. I would care more for my owl. I would just throw it straight in the straight in the hearth. Right, but Come out see, the other side. Hi Hippogriff on the main site actually has um, a comment about what you just said, Noah. Um, here she says, I think the reason flu powder is not used more widely in the Postal Service is because all of those little pinches of dust used to deliver mail to wizards across the world could add up to a lot of flu powder. This could get much more expensive than just reusing the same owl over and over to deliver mail. This also raises the question of how much flu powder costs and what it is made out of. So... There's a good argument against your throwing them in the fire. Yeah. Well, you, we're not sure you, how expensive it is. But well, flu powder yeah, I think requires, it, I, I think, requires a wizard to do the fluing. I don't think that an owl would would be able to use flu powder anyway. Because do, it do requires that, intention. 
Flu powder yeah, that's requires what, intention. Was, when 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 Ron or Harry says the wrong thing, he ends up in the wrong place. Well, your owl's not going to say anything, so it's just going to sit there. Yeah, I agree. That's actually exactly what I was thinking uh, listening to the episode from uh, last time. I don't I don't know if owls would be able to do it. And also, we know that flu powder must be at least something of a price concern because we know the Weasleys um, at least struggle to keep enough of it, so it can be super cheap. Yeah, I just I thought in my head that you could kind of scream it and then throw the owl in, <laughs> hope for the best. Well, if you want to talk I about want, animal, see animal cruelty, cool. Noah, what if you what if you just incinerated the owl? <laughs> well, it's it's all about timing, Caleb. Okay. Yeah. Well, you or there's that. some there's some place in the wizarding wizarding world called Hoot, and every owl ends up there because that's all they can say. <laughs> however, oh, darn it! I went to Hoot however, again. The owls in the story have a degree of intelligence, Steve. Wouldn't you say they do? So mm-hmm. couldn't they? You know, in owl speak, say the appropriate thing mm-hmm. and, you know, get where they have to go. Mm-hmm. But I still think, it, and this is my opinion, but I still see flu powder as requiring the, you know, intention of a wizard and the saying of it. Because what is it that Harry says wrong that puts him one grade off? If you really analyze it, he doesn't say the name of some other place. And so it's the intention. He just, he, he his Ooh. intention is close, but it's not right there because he doesn't know how to do it. And you're not going to get that kind of creative thought out of an owl, I don't think. I would agree. Very creative owls, though. I mean, yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, fans out there, if any of your owls manage to do this, write us. Write us a note, please. (laughs) I'm very curious. Or if you've got any spare flu powder, just write us about that too. Yeah. Hmm. Break it down. Let us know what it's made of. But don't send it to us because that could be trouble. <laughs> Some white powder turns up in an envelope, and everybody oh my panics, gosh. and it's just flu powder. Sorry, <laughs> isn't it green? Isn't it yeah, green it is. or black? Yeah, I think okay. it's green. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look. But... Even worse. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're next going to put a final word, so we say, to um, the topic of wrong sortings, and uh, this comment comes from Wand Stone Cloak from our forums and it says in the long run though houses do not matter you are destined to become the person that you are destined to become if harry was sorted into slytherin what would have really changed would he have become a pure blood loving hothead would he join with voldemort no his destiny and the destiny of all students has little to do with what house you are sorted into hmm. definitely a polarizing statement I mean, yeah, in a, in a way that makes sense. I mean, but also I think you're a product of your environment. So, you know, if, if you're leaning in one direction and then you get sorted in a house that is a polar opposite of, you know, the direction your personality was already headed in, does I mean, does that change you? I, I don't know. I mean, it seems the hat wouldn't put you in that position in the first place. Yeah. That's kind of but... the whole point of the sorting. I would, I, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna, I would push back on this statement a little bit just because... I think that Harry would not have been in Slytherin solely because of, well, I mean, that was his choice. And that's kind of the whole purpose behind it. Yeah, and that's what it comes back to, right? Is it is it your choices or, you know, the the hat's final word, you know, which which is more important? Yeah. Or, or does the hat merely legitimate your choice that you just haven't formulated yet? It You know, it's we're never going to get a full answer out of this, but for everyone... You know, for all the times we've been saying that certain characters don't belong in houses that they are in or could work better in other houses, Mm -hmm. I don't think we can ever really say that because the whole way the Sorting Hat works is it, you know, it kind of knows and it kind of, it puts you there. And, you know, even Peter Pettigrew is a, 
uh, a Gryffindor. You know, a lot of people were saying in the comments, he's not a Slytherin, a Hufflepuff because he's patient being a rat, but there's some essential Gryffindor there that we, we fail to see because he wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, I know, but what about Snape? I mean, a lot of people think that in the end he should have been a Gryffindor. But no, he values, you know, Slytherin, you know, values more than Gryffindor values. He, he likes being part of a, a tightly knit group of people who, you know, think that they're kind of special and think that they're skilled and praise, you know, skills. Not but to did, say Gryffindors don't also like skilled players, but they're, they're more willing to pucker up somebody like Neville Longbottom, as we'll see. Whereas I think in Slytherin, you know, Snape isn't one of those people who desires to lift people who aren't as talented, Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So you think he's a true Slytherin? I do. I think it's a matter of values. I think so, yeah. I mean, Cedric shows great bravery. Uh, so does Snape. You don't have to be in Gryffindor to be brave. It, no, it I think, I think most, most wizards are, are in some way more than one house. It's more a matter of at that moment when they're sorted, which one is is their immediate destiny, you might say. But I don't think destiny really comes into it. I think it's a lot of it is in in Joe's way of telling us this story. I think it's all choices. What choices do you make? And the sorting is is at that moment, and you do have input into it. But every if you think about most characters, you could put them in two or three houses easily. And so right. it's you know it's it's a it's not just like if you get sorted into Slytherin, it's going to change you. Uh, no, you're not going to be sorted into Slytherin if you could be changed in that way, or you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, so it's a worthy it's a worthy conversation to be had. Mm-hmm. But, I don't think you know, I think you're right. We're never going to come to the end of it. We're never going to say, no. okay, we've got this all worked out now. Yeah, and and if, when we get to Chamber of Secrets, Harry has that whole bit with the Sorting Hat. You know, are you are you sure about this? And then he pulls out the sword at the end. You know, we're going to be talking about sorting a lot on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have um, a final, final word on something we, you know, laid to rest last episode. I just wanted to say this because it was a great comment. I don't remember where it came from or where I heard it. So if it was you, I apologize. But um, someone made a great comment to me about the nutrients in Desk Pig. The Um, Desk Pig. Yeah, sorry to bring it up yet again. (laughs) But um, this person said, if we are correct, um, saying that we are correct in that the objects transfigured into food aren't nutritious, then does that explain why the trio was hungry for most of Deathly Hallows? Well, did they transfigure many things into food? Well, I mean, yeah, Hermione transfigures, you know, things that she finds that are already food. You know, like um, twigs and berries and that type of thing, branches. Well, we've said that you can do that, but then I thought we kind of finalized in the fact that if you transfigure a desk into food you would only get the nutri- nutritional value of the desk. Right, that's what this comment is saying. That is this is that why they were so hungry for most of Deathly Hallows, because they were tra- transfiguring things that weren't food in the first place. Well, it sounds like they were transfiguring things that, that were food, like the berries. They were just Right, but branches aren't food. Were they eating branches? Twigs, I remember. You know, oh, Steve, maybe you can weigh in on this one. Uh, <laughs> on the old desk pig discussion. Oh yeah, I've, 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 I've been hearing about the desk pig, yeah. <laughs> we, we must know, and maybe you can, you can finish this off for us. Uh, McGonagall transforms a, a, a pig. She right. takes her desk, she transforms it into a pig, and then back again. Right. I have a few questions for you. Mm. Did she create life from nothing and then kill that life? And if that pig had remained a pig, could it have been a pig for all time? Was it a real pig? Could you eat that pig? And would you get the nutritional value of a pig from eating it? 
Uh, <laughs> 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 well, see, I think my only thought on that, and this is by no means some sort of definitive thought, because obviously we go on and on about these details, but that's yeah. very, very, very difficult for us as muggles to disconnect science from our thinking about magic. And frankly, there is no connection. And so you don't have the conservation of mass. You don't have nutrients. None of this stuff actually, we, we are going to talk about it. And we're going to focus on it because we cannot get the muggle out of our brain. But if you're a wizard, that simply is not an issue. It doesn't even exist. It's like if you're a wizard, when you go up to a peg that you need to pound into the ground, you're going to use your wand, and it's never going to occur to you that you could use a mallet. I mean, that just seems so completely foreign to the way life works. And it's the same with, with you know, when we talk about things like this. She transfigures it into a pig. That could be, it's a magical effect. We have no idea if that's a real pig or if it's a pig that would stay a pig forever. A lot of transfigured stuff doesn't stay forever. And we, as muggles, want to start getting scientific about it. And it's fun to do, and I say, by all means, do it. But we're never going to be able to really understand a magical effect. we got to find a real wizard. Bring him on the show. How's that, though, for sidestepping the whole issue? Hmm? You've, di- you've dismissed quite a lot, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Ah, there you go. That is, that is one answer to yeah. pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See, that's mm-hmm. what I mean. can just yeah. sidestep everything right there. All now, right. would you eat the pig? Would I eat the pig if it's bacon? If, if it's well, if it was transformed into bacon from there, yeah, through the normal means, I, I will always eat bacon. Okay, well, that's <laughs> that's answer to one question then. Good. So let's move on and discuss last week's special feature. Um, we did an artifact inspection on the mirror of Erised. We have so many comments on this. Um, I picked just a couple because we could probably talk about this for hours on end. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But this first comment here came from Nana from the forums. She says, in the discussion of the mirror of Erised, it was mentioned in passing Dumbledore's reply to Harry when he was asked what he saw in the mirror. Noah said that he was lying, just making something up. We discussed this on the forum, but I wanted to address it again here. I think Dumbledore's comment was actually quite revealing. Mrs. Weasley, an extremely caring and motherly sort, had sent Harry a hand-knitted jumper for Christmas, as she does for all of her kids. 
It's a very intimate sort of gift. Dumbledore says he sees a pair of warm, woolly socks and that most people give him books. I think he laments the fact that people only relate to him as a bookish, brilliant-minded person. It kind of means that there is no one who cares enough to knit him a pair of socks. No one who thinks of him as a real man with human needs for warmth and nurturing care. Joe always said it was sad that Dumbledore, who knew the value of love, had lived a long life without it. I think he wasn't lying, but speaking in riddles. The socks represent a cozy family, and seeing himself with socks meant seeing what Harry saw, a happy family. That's very nice, Nana, but why wouldn't he have just seen his family instead of the socks then, if they're symbolic? No, what she's saying is that his real answer is, I would see my family, and I'm going to answer it to Harry in a riddle. Yeah. I'm going to use that object as to represent the feelings that I have of wanting my family back. So she, even though he wouldn't actually see socks, he would actually see his family. He is answering Harry's question without lying exactly, but by using a bit of a, uh, a symbol for what he sees. That's true, but it seems like a slight jump. I mean, we don't... Do we get many instances in the series of him being very appreciative of socks? A few times. Well, there's no, socks but I mean, all through the series. I don't think that discounts the theory just because he doesn't... You know, I mean, that's Dumbledore's nature. I feel like this is a very common Dumbledore answer. But I agree with Nana. I, I read that and I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I like it. What would you guys see in the mirror? We never That's did kind of really a personal discuss question, that. Kat. Well, would you see socks? I would I'd not. See, I'd see socks. No. Well, you That's don't have to answer. Either. I'd see myself exactly as I am. Oh, yeah. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, Only I'm with a bag of Doritos, right? Right. Oh, yum. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think it's the case that, that most people would see dead relatives or, um, you know, food or, or glory? It, these the, the mirror only seems to reflect the deepest and biggest, most de- desires, unless you are truly content. I don't think most people would see um, past relatives i think that's pretty unique to harry because most of us are not in that you know and i I guess i shouldn't speak for everybody but i think for a lot of people having this lost relative or whatever doesn't necessarily become the number one thing that you that you long for it does for harry because of his particular circumstances but um i don't know it's just i i see that as pretty unique yeah, I mean, other orphans would probably feel the same way, but yeah, mm-hmm. I know yeah. what you mean. And Joe does, because of her situation, which is, right. you know, unique. What would Voldemort see? Hmm. He would see himself living forever. Yeah. Yeah. I feel probably. like that, I feel like Joe has answered that before. Well, she answered, I think, what his, um, his bogger would be, that, you know, it would be oh, right. him. Him dead dead or something like that so so is the mirror the same thing or or does he you know what he see is his mom in a in a like growing up in a wizarding family actually she said this this is in one of the interviews she did she said that Voldemort would see himself powerful and eternal mm. there you go yeah all right there we go did you look that up in the lexicon uh the lexicon book yeah wonder <laughs> <laughs> looked up mirror of Era said and it lists what everybody <laughs> would see awesome <laughs> well I mean that's you know that's one answer <laughs> Okay. Well, well it's, the, it's J.K. Rowling's answer, but you're right. It's one answer. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of socks and such, um, Socks for Dobby, one of the users on the forum, has a great comment about the mirror again. 
Here she says, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about the Mirror of Erised, you mentioned the Horcruxes. It got me thinking about how they relate. Take Ron, for example. The mirror shows him his deepest desire to be recognized by his family and not have jealous, um, and not feel jealous, and the Horcrux magnified his feeling of jealousy and, f- and feeling of being unimportant, especially about Hermione and Harry's relationship. I wonder if when Harry is wearing the Horcrux, he feels especially alone and without family. It would be interesting to know what Hermione sees in the mirror and if it relates to her experience when wearing the Horcrux. Steve? Hmm. Oh, I... I... I definitely there, there's a number of these items in the books which which show aspects of personality. The mirror being one, uh, Bogarts being another, and I think that's a great connection between that and the uh, ho- um, Horcruxes. I'd never thought about that, so I think that's a really good point. Do we know what Hermione sees in the mirror? I don't think we do. No, no. Uh, it's never never given. Another question though: Do we think the mirror possesses some kind of yeah, as you say, personality or some kind of motivation, or is it simply an object? It seems to, you know potentially put a lot of people in distress or kind of bring you in magnetically. You know, we know about mirrors and the myth of Narcissus, you know, falling in love with himself and the dangers of, of being enraptured by your reflections. But we also know about objects in the wizarding world having a sort of, you know, personality to them a little bit. Um, is, the, is the mirror kind of devious? Do we assign it a kind of personality or is it just an object? I think it's a mirror, which means it's reflecting what it sees at that moment. I think your what you would see in the mirror changes as your life changes, and so uh, you know it's it is a mirror. It is showing what at that moment is most important. Do you think that Ron would still want to be Quidditch captain and everything if he was stepped in front of the mirror ten years later? No, I think his his desires would have changed, and what he sees in the mirror would have changed. He probably would have just seen himself as he was. Ron. Yeah, he's pretty later. happy at the end, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, he got yeah, the he girl. Can even drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'd we'd say the mirror is kind of innocent in terms of itself. It has no motivations, but it is simply a mirror. And we we as humans are kind of our own. We set traps for ourselves. We're our own darkest. Oh, that's a good you know? way to put it. Absolutely. I think the weirdest thing about the mirror to me is that you can hide something in it. So there's well, something. There's there's a there's an entirely different aspect to this magical device that that you know, and if Dumbledore hid the stone in the mirror and the mirror was on the third floor, what was underneath the cow, the, the, the Hogwarts castle? What was everything guarding? If the stone was in the mirror and the mirror was on the third floor until December 27. Yeah. And why Ooh. did Dumbledore leave it in the open where, I mean, well, I would, somehow. I always say, I always say that if I really wanted to hide something, I'd put it in an old cigarette box in the garage as opposed to, and you next know, to the, next to the locked safe, right? Yeah, in the locked yeah, safe but, with the with the you know dragon on it would be you know somewhere else. But do we think that he perhaps suspected Harry might discover it, especially now that he has given him the invisibility cloak? I think he wanted him to. Yeah, I do too. Do you think, think he has some that. sort of foresight that Harry would end up in with the mirror, um, with with um, to get it out to save it from Voldemort getting his hands on it? He didn't know Voldemort was in, involved at that time. Well, but, that's uh, true. but the point being that I think, and this is again my way of looking at it, I can't really make good sense of the entire plot of book one without assuming that Dumbledore is kind of running things behind the scenes. Right. Because there's, there's too many things that just don't make sense unless you realize that, oh, they do if Dumbledore knew. Oh, they do if Dumbledore told Hagrid to be such an idiot. You know, if, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's too many things that don't make sense until you think, yeah. Oh, okay. If Dumbledore knew, 
then this works. Then then he intentionally leads Harry with the sounds that he hears and all this stuff. If you read through and, and look at it, there's constantly things going on around Harry that he barely notices. And That's we'll true. The, and, and, you know, if you see, think about that as being Dumbledore, just kind of quietly just keeping an eye on things and manipulating things to to the ends that he wants. Well, then all of a sudden this all kind of makes more sense. Yeah, I well, mean, Dumbledore, Dumbledore does orchestrate a lot of things, doesn't he? Very it? much so, yeah. He he and Snape, he, you know, he's using Snape here to watch Harry, keep an eye, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's why he's going to be referee mm-hmm, very exactly. soon. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of concerned in the last episode because it seemed that Dumbledore, you know, knew a little bit too much about Harry, where Harry was at all the times, as if he, you know, he'd been watching him, watching Harry look at the mirror, and uh, I said the, I said the stalker word last mm-hmm. episode and you know we talk about how great Dumbledore is and like you know watching everything but just how meticulous is he you know keeping track of everybody in the castle uh, seemingly without the Marauder's Map well I don't think he keeps track of everybody but he certainly keeps track of Harry I think I think he's watching Harry very closely and not always in person there's a, all these magical devices in his office and uh, you know we don't know exactly what forms that takes but I think he's definitely keeping a close eye on Harry agreed right Speaking of Dumbledore and uh, all that, Noah, why don't you tell us some answers that you got to the podcast question of the week? Yeah, sure. So the question of the week last week was in regards to the the invisibility cloak, which we know comes from Dumbledore, but he received he gives a mysterious note instead. You know, not putting his name down. And the question was: Consider the scene of Christmas morning when Harry receives the invisibility invisibility cloak, one of his first and most ancient gifts. We know now that the mystery gift giver was none other than Albus Dumbledore. But did Dumbledore have to give the cloak back to Harry as part of some magical rule? Did James leave it for Harry in his will? And if so, how exactly does magical inheritance work? And what indeed do you need to do in the eyes of wizard law to possess something in, to hand down in the first place? So that was kind of a bigger question about magical inheritance, which I threw to the fans. And we got a lot of responses back, you know, specifically about the invisibility cloak. We know that that gets handed down from father to son or, you know, uh, you know, mother to daughter, you know, I would assume. So that has a certain level of inheritance with it. But just in general, general speaking, you know, how does inheritance work when you, when you leave something down? So let's look at some comments. First we have Nana. This was on the main site. I think it quite likely that there was a well-written will after the, de- there was a will written after the deaths of, deaths of James' parents. After all, they were rich and probably had a family lawyer but I doubt that the will included the cloak. I think it was a secretive thing for James, something he had used for stealth and mischief in his youth. Since it was a special object, it might it might have always been something to keep secret and not include pri- publicly in a will. Perhaps each generation honored the secret, and over the long years the complete tale was lost. If it had always been written in a will, it likely would have included an allusion to its significance. So that brings up another question that fans were talking about. Did James know that it was a Deathly Hollow? Guys... I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. No. Mm-mm. I think very few people really took the Deathly Hallows at all seriously. I think right. Dumbledore people. was the only one that suspected it, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so many people James don't have... believe in it. Believe in the Do you think James realized when Dumbledore asked, can I can I borrow it? No. No. Mm-mm. Nope. I don't think yeah. he had any clue whatsoever. He probably didn't believe in that type of thing. Well, he, he, you know, he having been told the tales from a young boy. Yeah, he would have known about the tales, but I don't think he would have ever 
Well, there are other there are other invisibility cloaks, and he had no reason to suspect that his was any different. Because if you read the tale of the two, the three brothers, there's nothing in there to describe the cloak to the point where you'd say, "Hey, that really specifically applies to this one." Right. But but, but he must have known that, that he was he must have known he was a descendant of the Peveril brothers. Not necessarily. Did he, did he? I don't know if he knew. Yeah, we're talking. We're talking true. thousands of years. Well, thousands, a lot, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I don't know right. who my my predecessors were three, four hundred years ago. I suppose that's true. But don't you think if he saw Dumbledore asking to examine it and knowing the kind of wizard that Dumbledore was, you know, he probably he, maybe he would have gotten suspicious, or at least that it was a very useful object, and then maybe he could have been upset that you know you're taking this from me when I might need it the most. That's you know that's the thing that really would hit me is that it's like seriously you want my cloak now? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I've got yeah, Voldemort after me for goodness sakes. I would love to know like how that conversation actually went. Like, what did Dumbledore use to justify to James that he needed it more than they did? Well, on the other hand, they're they're behind the Fidelius charm, and so they they felt fairly impregnable. I think. Exactly. And, but the thing is, is that James. I would think would assume that Dumbledore could be invisible without the cloak. So why would he need it for himself? Well, I think he, I don't think he thought he was going to use it for himself so much as just examine it, you know, no. take a look at it and find out what the magic was, that kind of thing. Yeah. It seems like a Dumbledore thing to do. But we know from Dumbledore's point of view, he has got this cloak in his hands mm-hmm. after how many years and he needs to see it no matter yeah. who he's going to put in danger to do that. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. it's his bad decision making, right? Then. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, back to the question. Uh, let's see, because the question again: Did he have to give it back to Harry by by law, or did he just kind of figure, you know, this should go back to its rightful owner? So this is a comment from Flight Quest ninety one. The cloak is passed down father to son, and after a while, Harry comes to think of Dumbledore as a father figure. Could this be foreshadowing Harry's future relationship with Dumbledore? Huh. Possibly. I'd never really thought of it that way, but I mean, in a way that makes sense, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, pre-serious, just like Molly, I think is Harry's leading mother figure up to this point. Dumbledore is probably his leading father figure up until him meeting Sirius. So I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does kind of interrupt the chain in a way, or at least he, he helps it along this cloak going from you know, father to son. Yeah, because, I mean, what would have happened to it? I mean, we discussed this briefly last week, but what would have happened to it if it was in the house at the time, if Dumbledore didn't have it? Who knows where it would be? So, right. in a way, Dumbledore, you know, facilitated that inheritance factor. The transfer. Mm-hmm. This yeah. uh, this father to son bit is kind of scaring me. It, it doesn't only go to father to son, right? It goes from parent to child. Or do we not know this? Mm. I don't know. I think you're. I know what you're tapping into, and I think it's definitely, I think it's definitely possible that it's a father-son thing. Yeah, I mean, in the story, it says that he passed it to his son, not to his child. Right. But if there is no son, then then what do you do, right? Because does does the cloak go down each line of the son? In do we know that, or is it just to? Because it seems to go by family name. But then again, that that changes, so it must. Have yeah, been so it must daughters. have at some point, or else you know Harry would be a Peverell. So right. Oh, okay. Just all right. Just making making sure you know gender stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So Mudblood and Proud is another comment. Perhaps magical inheritance is a sort of charm. When Harry was born, the charm that was put on the cloak by Ignotus Peveril recognized that Harry was the next descendant born in the family and that he would next have the cloak. 
Perhaps it was by chance that when James gave the cloak to Dumbledore, Dumbledore was acting as a surrogate cloak owner. When Dumbledore felt it was right, he gave the cloak to Harry. This charm could also be applied to the Weasley family. When Molly gave Harry her brother's, her brother Fabian's watch, we do not know much about Fabian, but we assume he was unmarried and had no children. This means that all his possessions could not be passed on because he had no direct descendants. So the ministry recognized that Molly was his next of kin and passed his belongings on to him when he died. Molly then acted as a surrogate for his belongings, and she could do what she wished with them. So she passed it down to Harry. That's kind of a complex comment. But I, I don't know. I feel like you can't really put a spell on the cloak, specifically because it's uh, uh, enchantments don't work on it. Particularly since it's a Deathly Hallow. Right. right. Well, there's another aspect that I think is, a, whenever, whenever I think about some of the things that happen in the books, I think there's a tendency of magical, especially very powerful magical items, to make, to force their destiny to happen the way they want it to. If you think about uh, the, the sword of Gryffindor, um, it, it goes where it's needed. It, it has almost a... It's like built, almost like built into the magic of the wizarding world is that some things are, 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 are kind of drawn together. Some things will, will work toward good or toward evil and affect events. So why does Dumbledore have the cloak? We could also look at it as because the cloak needed to be with Dumbledore and made sure that it was with Dumbledore and then got to Harry. I look at Harry getting the cloak as being another example of Dumbledore orchestrating things. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "Well, I'm going to let Harry's going to have this little adventure that, and again, he doesn't know Voldemort's involved at this point, but he's going to have this little adventure. He's going to need that cloak, so I'm going to give it to him." And but I think the cloak itself, and I'm not saying sentient wise, but just by its very magical nature, powerful magical nature, kind of bends reality toward its goals and its destiny. That's interesting. Because no, the wand can do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's almost think of it like gravity. You know, certain things have so much gravity, magical gravity, that they pull things toward them or away from them. And if you read that in the books, you can find examples of that all through the books, where certain things happen. And you think, "Wow, that was pretty amazing that that happened in that particular way." And but but things get drawn together. Things get pulled toward their natural good result or bad result, depending on the magical item. And I think that's kind of built into the magic of the universe. Yeah, I like that. And maybe maybe Dumbledore doesn't necessarily orchestrate every piece, but he at least, you know, puts these possessions in the right hands, or he gets mm-hmm. stuff. Well, I think know, Dumbledore Dumbledore understands the magical nature of the of the universe enough to realize that he can't make everything happen the way that he wants, and tries to be open to it and put things where they're supposed to be. And I think you know, if you think about all those little devices that he has in his office, I mean, what does he? sensing and I mean you can almost imagine him being able to sense the magicalness around him in ways that most people can't and he kind of uh, tries to to fit into the magical flow of 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 the universe if you yeah. will and so Much like the you got me thinking of the time turner exactly uh, yeah and you know book three when you have you know, that horrible situation where it does seem that Sirius Black is innocent and you and you know as well as Buckbeak so what you do is you kind of set one thing in motion but you know, not too much so. You can't just go back in time over and over again to f- make it happen exactly the way you want. He had to go with the flow and figure it out. And if it was, 
if it was all up to him, if he had to make it happen exactly a certain way, he would have had to have done 20 minutes of instructions to Hermione. But instead he just says, well, just go back a little bit because he knows that things will work out the way they're supposed to because that's the way the universe works. You just have to be in the right place at the right time and you have to make the right choices and the right decisions because if you don't, you can mess it up. Right. And also, specifically speaking to that instant, he probably saw some weird things happening, you know, that were just mm -hmm. kind of life-saving moves like he saw the buck beak wasn't there right. you know he probably figured out that he was gonna suggest something later on and as much as i don't like to think of the films as canon that moment when he diverts fudge's attention on the front porch of the of hagrid's hut as they're finishing up their little beautiful i mean right, yeah. yeah i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> he shouldn't have known but somehow he did right. <laughs> smart guy that dumbledore oh i'll tell you well, good. Right, I mean, so, that, that's a good discuss discussion on the, uh, you know, the magical inheritance. Let's jump right into the chapters for this week, and we're covering chapters 13 and 14 of Philosopher's Stone. All right. Cool. Okay. So chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel. And can so, I just say me... right now, what a strange title for that chapter. Nicholas Flamel is a tiny little detail that comes in at the very end of the chapter. The entire chapter is about Quidditch. That's true. It is. And so instead, we've got a chapter called Nicholas Flamel. Hmm. And you know, Why do you think the that was done? I've, the only reason I can think of is that we you know, have spent the entire book so far wondering who Nicholas Flamel is. I, I mean, I have to admit the first time that I read it, I, didn't, I knew I'd heard the name, but I couldn't remember where, and I wasn't about to go back because I was enjoying the book too much. But when you get to that chapter that says Nicholas Flamel, you go, ah, good, now we're going to find out. And then you read and read and read and read and read, <laughs> and it's not there. I think, and I think that's what it is. I mean, she wants, it, she wants you to realize that this is significant. So that's mm -hmm. why she names the chapter after him, even though it's only a very small yeah. part yeah. At, the, at the very end. Yeah. And, and she's very good at naming chapters in ways that, that you don't realize till afterwards what a clever title it was. Absolutely. And for younger readers, it keeps you, you know, focused and, you know, continuity of the story. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of for yeah. us older readers, too, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, the chapter opens with, as you said, you know, a lot of Quidditch going on. And Oliver Wood tells Harry the sad news that Snape is going to be refereeing the next game between uh, Gryffindor and Hufflepuff. So, you know, we know, obviously, in the last game, Snape was actually trying to rescue Harry by muttering the counter curse as Quirrell was actually, you know, cursing him. So now he's actually going to be referee during this game. Do we believe this was Snape's idea or this is Dumbledore again, just kind of setting things up, you know, putting, putting him in place or maybe they, they came to the conclusion together, but how did, how do you think Snape felt about this uh, scenario? Well, I definitely think it was Dumbledore's idea. I don't, I mean, I think he knew someone needed to be there in a closer um, space to protect him and he wasn't going to be out there refing it. Um, but I definitely think Snape is pissed about it. Like, I don't think he wants oh, to rep at all. I mean, no. Can you can you think of anything more kind of humiliating than have to fly around in front of everybody on a broomstick? Yeah. It's like, come on. I'm beyond It doesn't this. seem like Snape. No, not at all. No. Yeah. Just about as much in character as Hagrid kissing, you know, McGonagall at the Christmas party. Right. <laughs> that, was, that was a surprise. I did yes, not remember that when I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the film. <laughs> No, it should have been. Oh, that would have been oh, a great moment, you. huh? Love it. Oh, but cool. I agree. I think I think dumb, I think Snape is just getting so annoyed with this whole having to keep track of of you know yeah. of Harry thing, and then it's like seriously, you want me to do what? He's but. not going to not do it because of like the no. circumstances and like their um, he and Dumbledore's sort of deal. But I mean, he mm -hmm. definitely is not happy about it. I mean, and it's only how many months in? I mean, it's just before Easter at this point, right? 
And yeah, it this is actually year, so. this is actually about February, uh, end of February. This is two months after the last chapter. Right. Yeah. So this I mean, is... he's getting fed up real quick. It sucks mm-hmm. to be Snape. Yep. Mm-hmm. But luckily, it is a very quick game because <laughs> Harry just instantly swoops down and he catches the snitch in record time. Okay, not just luckily, but you realize that this game started at four p.m. The yeah. only game in the entire books that starts at four o'clock in the afternoon. And is if he right? had not, if he had not caught the snitch. In five minutes, it would have been dark, because in Scotland, that time of year, it gets dark about 5.30. So they started a Quidditch match an hour before dark. Wow. And the only reason they did that is because Rowling wanted to have an excuse to get Harry into the into the woods. Is that... Oh, man. So this is an example of where I think if I was Rowling, I would... She has said before how she wishes she could kind of go back and rewrite, and I think she's got to be looking at this and saying, okay, I just... <laughs> this is This is just clumsy. And this is just, you know, and, and the only time in the entire series when a Quidditch match is put off to the afternoon. Otherwise, it's 11 a.m. every time. So, is that true? Yes, Interesting. Mm-hmm. So well, we're, seeing, maybe... we're seeing an example of Rowling's early writing here, which is, I think it's fascinating. I love to look at and see her progress in her writing and the way her approach is to the writing and the planning and, and quite honestly, how much she's going to listen to editors. And, um, and you see it here that, that, you know, she's allowed herself to kind of just force the issue a little bit to make her plot move forward. And I think by the time she gets to book five, she realizes, okay, these fans are going to pick this apart. i gotta, I got to write it a little <laughs> more carefully. So. Mm-hmm. Well, as we know, she, she, you know, writing those later books, it was kind of a constant, like, warrior struggle. i got to keep it. i got to keep consistent. Every oh, yeah. And, but, and not just consistent, but how am I going to hide the things I have to talk about? Right. That's that was. I just can't imagine how she did it. I look back and I think, how in the world did she write all this stuff without giving everything away? Again, again, she's a genius. Brilliant. Yeah, I, would, I would have to agree. Yep. And the way and the way that we, you know, as you say, manipulate with time, or the way she works with time in this series, or we get it all from Harry's perspective, and you know, he's gonna he's gonna be having breakfast, then he's going to potions, and it's very fluid. But a lot of time will pass quickly, and we won't, you know, you won't really realize. But you know. For this, in this instance, she had to make, make the game later so that we could get to the forest. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Which uh, is an interesting scene, indeed. But oh, yeah. And another another example another example of Dumbledore watching over Harry. But. Right, because he's going to be there, and then right by his side at the end. But let's hold on that for a second. Sure. Uh, before we get to the Quidditch game, we have you know Ron and Hermione playing chess. And this is interestingly the only thing that Ron is better at Hermione at, or, or you know, we we note someone notes in the chapter that Hermione is having a real struggle at it. So is this besides just foreshadowing of the fact that you know Ron will lead the big chess game later on? Are we getting a, are we getting from Joe that there are different kinds of intelligence? Is Ron this kind of I'm going to go with my gut character, and you know we're getting introduced to that. Well, I mean, yeah, I think there are definitely different kinds of intel- intelligence. I mean, there's, you know, street smart, book smart. And I think that's the difference between Ron and Hermione. Ron but they goes make a, the, that's, I think that's why they make such a good match, is that they each kind of bring something different to the table. Yeah. Together, they make the perfect, uh, you know, support group for Harry. Yep. Yeah, that's well, pretty much my thinking. They played each other's strengths and weaknesses pretty well. So mm-hmm. I didn't pick up on that as much in the beginning. I didn't like going through the series the first time. I didn't really predict Ron and Hermione together until much later in the series. So going back through this now is 
eye-opening to catch these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Ron is is really shining here. Where in, you know later in the books he will kind of, you know, he'll, he'll do a lot of comic relief, but his uh, you know his skill set here is being highlighted as he can he can really strategize. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I remember a lot of people like theorizing the fact that he sacrificed himself at the end of the game as being, you know, foreshadowing the fact that he will sacrifice himself at the end of the series. Mm-hmm. You know, happy to say that never really happened, but... I always thought uh, that. I always thought that Ron was going to die sacrificing himself. Oh, I'm glad he didn't. I have a soft I mean, spot a lot for of Ron. Have been upset. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't his new wand have a unicorn hair in it? Yes. I believe it does, yep. And the unicorn, or was the, you know, the innocent is the first to die and all of that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Hey, he uh, every pretty much everybody made it out except for, you know, Remus and Tonks. Actually, Red. his old wand, his old wand has it because it's got the unicorn hair hanging out of it in Chamber of Secrets. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, not anyway, pretty so much moving, everybody, but yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Moving on through the chapter, Neville stumbles into the common room with his his legs tied together because Draco's just um, jinxed him. And uh, Harry you realize that up. the library's on the fourth floor. This poor child has just hopped up <laughs> from the fourth floor to the seventh. I mean, no, think about this. This is this is Neville. You know, yes. we're we're made to think of him as being sort of a doofus because he comes in, you know, having had his legs locked together. This kid just hopped up three or four floors in that castle. How he's much time some, was that? Oh, he's got some grit to him. I mean, you think about, you know, he's he's. You're starting to see even in that these little hints of who he really is. Hmm. Oh yeah, and he takes on he takes on Crab and Goyle later. I know, I love it. Yeah, I mean they are all eleven, but he's got some. He's got some heart. Mm-hmm. So you know he comes in and Harry says, "You know what? You're worth twelve of Malfoy." And uh, I just thought this was this was rather cute. Aww. Malfoy then, who runs away in the forest, right? Uh, yep. Well, and I mean, and this is what you mentioned before. You know about Slytherins don't tend to pick up their peers, but Gryffindors, you know, want to help their friends and help their fellow housemates you know, to their full potential. So this is Harry, you know, lifting up Neville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an essentially Gryffindor moment. It mm-hmm. is, I would definitely. Say. I agree. But then Neville gives them a little tip-off. Because Harry gives Neville a chocolate frog card, or chocolate fr- frog, and then Neville gives Harry the card, and guess who's on it? Albus Dumbledore. And that's and that was the little bit of text where we first got Nicholas Flamel's name, because mm-hmm. he worked with Dumbledore on alchemy. Mm-hmm. Yay. Of course, we all know that because we've, we've read it a million times. But, you know, big deal in the story. So we get the Sorcerer's Stone. We figure that, we figure out that's what is behind Fluffy. Or underneath Fluffy, rather. Mm. But, you know, I just, I, I kind of want us to just talk about the stone for a second. This mysterious substance that can turn metal into gold. Now, you know, in classical culture, it is, uh, it's kind of an icon. You know, everybody knows about it. it. It's referenced in a lot of places. But how is it blended into Joe's world here? I mean, we already have things that... We have transfiguration where you can turn things into other objects. But, you know, the stone seems to be different in that it can change an essence of a thing into another essence in a way that magic can't. I mean, what do we what do we think here? Why is the stone, stone so prized for its uh, transfiguring something into gold anyway? Well, the other time we see something transfigured into gold is the leprechauns. 
who are creating gold, but then it disappears. So I wonder if, because again, you, if you think of magic as not just the science, but also the philosophy or the idea behind it, the gold has an inherent value to it, and you can create you can you know create an object or something, but you can't create the value. Hmm. And yeah. so if you would, so perhaps if you transfigure something, you couldn't transfigure something into gold, real gold, because you couldn't give it the value. Why does gold have this magical, like, impossible thing to create? You know what I'm saying? Like, why is, it seems as if then that this value is inherent to the magical world and that it's like really, really valuable when we know that gold is really just another kind of, um, another kind of stone. Why is it divine here? Uh, that that's kind of a you know I'm talking about it kind of sillyly, but I'm I'm just saying like why is it why is it so impressive that you can make something into gold when when the value of gold is kind of arbitrary? We know it has value in our world, but does it have any sort of magical essential value? That doesn't seem to make sense to me. So why is that so prized for the source for the philosopher's stone? I think it's it's I mean, how else would you create gold? I mean, it's probably one of Gamp's laws, you know, of elemental transfiguration that you can't turn anything into gold. So, but why gold? Or at least something some of similar, like of that value. Like, right? That. I think I think the the key of it is is what you can't create is value, because that's not a intrinsic, like a scientific piece of the, uh, you know, it, what you you can create a. You can, yeah, you can create a thing. You can create the the form, but you can't create, the, like you said, the human added value. Right. I wonder if it's even enumerated as such, though, in Gam's law, because the value is so relative. Right. That's the thing. So That's why there's only so five laws. So what I'm laws. thinking is that we're kind of touching onto the the whole history of the philosopher's stone, though, and uh, it it really is about creating uh, a true form of, of an object, and gold is potentially this true form of of metal. Right, the whole idea of the, of the philosopher's stone is to create. It's actually a psychological or a, for a religious thing almost of creating the perfect person, and finding the stone is the sim- symbol of becoming that perfect person, which is kind of strange than to think of Voldemort having it. But yeah, and what about what about Dumbledore? I mean, we haven't really thought about this, but Dumbledore has done some serious work with Nicholas Flamel. Mm-hmm. You know, what what was he looking for? What kind of alchemy stuff has he done? Yeah, it's tr- it's true. If you think about the the goal of alchemy, what's alchemy for, and what does it do? That's a, a a strange thing for him to be working on. Although, on the other hand, he spent his whole life kind of trying to redeem himself from his failure of wanting the wrong things at the beginning. Right. And as a as head of transfiguration, uh, as head of the department, and a, and a professor in that, it makes sense that he would have studied alchemy. Hmm, that's true. Right? I never yeah. thought of it that way, but but alchemy would be a a transfiguration uh, discipline. It's if probably you will. or just probably an, an old the older form of the magic for it. You know, it's like yeah, just because it's something that ancient and full of lore, I mm-hmm. think would be a reason that it would draw Dumbledore to it. Almost like the original, most in- elemental form of transfiguration. If you look at the difference in, in um, um, divination between Ferenzi's approach and Trelawney's approach, you see com- two completely different styles of what divination can be. You can almost think of true transfiguration is going to be things that are represented by alchemy, this changing toward some perfect uh, version of yourself and of, of, of material. 
Right. And you can see transfiguring a desk into a pig is is kind of more <laughs> the mundane version of that same thing. Or it's uh, illusory. Hmm. Yeah. Or it's more about the appearance and stuff. That's very interesting. Okay, now I'm thinking about bacon again, but go ahead. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and, you know, just one last point about the stone. Um, it's not, it won't be the first stone we see. We also have the resurrection stone. Right. Uh, do we see any connections to these two? Or any symbolism of the of the stone. Well, in Tales of Beetle the Bard, uh, Dumbledore makes a note in there that many critics believe that Beetle <laughs> was inspired by the philosopher's stone, which makes the immortality-inducing elixir of life when creating his stone that could raise the dead. Right. So that's a Dumbledore footnote in Tales of Beetle the Bard. So there you go. They're linked. There you go. Or at least, at least in the at least in the viewpoint of people who don't know that the Deathly Hallows are real, I would say. Because right. this is assuming that Beetle just made the whole thing up. Or it's just because Rowling has an affinity for rocks and is telling kids it's okay to have pet rocks. <laughs> Which I'm totally down for. Did you have a pet rock? I do not, but I wish I would have. I think if I had a pet rock like this, I'd be a little like preoccupied bringing people back from the dead and, you know, being immortal. That'd be pretty That's awesome, pet. pet Rock. Seriously. Yeah, I don't know that I really want to bring people back from the dead as a general rule. They're really smelly anyway. I would probably bring I would probably bring some of my pets back, but probably not people. <laughs> you know, like the cat I had when I was two. Okay, then think about how twisted this is. This whole concept, if we're gonna, when you've got you know zombies and in fury. Is that a twisted version of this same general kind of magic, a kind of a transfiguration, but really kind of gone really bad? Well, with Inferi, though, it seems that you're not bringing anything of the spirit back, just the body. No, but it's, it's still like an puppet, attempt. Right? Yeah, but it's an attempt. Oh, it's, certainly. You know, it's, it's the same concept. You're going to try to take what's dead and turn it into, into something living kind of a thing. Oh, I can't, I can't wait to get to Inferi. Um, You've got a few years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hold it in. But, but that's true. This, you know, how many, how many times in the books do we have people coming from back from the dead, or this, you know, this this theme of death, and you know, trumping it. That is, you know, the foundation of the series. Very much. Well, I so. mean, that's where Joe was when she was writing it, right? I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's Dealing such a death. recurring theme, right? Mm -hmm. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hiya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. And on that same vein, uh, Voldemort. Now, why is he? Why is he after the stone in the first place? He already has the Horcruxes. Um, are, am, am I to assume that he was in such a tortured state that he wanted the the stone for its uh, for its for its potion that could you know possibly sustain him? No, no, no. See, he didn't have all his Horcruxes at this point because he was right. you know quote unquote killed before he was able yeah. to make his last one. So to use them, I feel like he would feel like it's setting him back. So he would want to well, use certainly, he would he... want to use the stone or the elixir of life um in order to come alive and not have to use one of those horcruxes. Yeah, uh, he had horcruxes, think... he just didn't have a body. 
he had a, some a pretty big step to take before he was going to be back where he wanted to be. And I would assume that he's looking at the stone as being part of that process. And I just think in general, he's so obsessive about making sure in every possible way that he is immune to death, that mm-hmm. this is one extra thing to sort of tack on to that protection list. Sure. I wonder how that would, how that would go in though. How can you, how can you make a body from that? I, I don't know. It's magic. It is. magic. I mean, this right. is that, that, that question sort of, I always had a problem with the philosopher's stone, you know, while, while reading and going back, because I mean, there's obviously the issue that I, I don't really understand still, I mean, it's pitched as something that makes someone immortal, but it clearly does not make anyone immortal because once it's destroyed, uh, Nicholas and his wife, Paranel, are going to die, you know, without it. So. Well, it makes the elixir of life. The stone doesn't make a person immortal. It makes the right, elixir well, of life. True, it makes a true. potion. But the, right. the right. tagging of immortal is certainly mm-hmm. not correct, at least in the sense no. that we use the word immortal. No. Mm-mm. So maybe that elixir of life is what he wants to get in himself to try to recreate. I mean, he is in such a weakened state. He he wants to do something to get himself, you know, back in stronger. Yeah, stronger. Right. Mm-hmm. And even even you know, in addition to it's just yet another precaution, another step away from death potentially. If he has this as well, in addition to mm-hmm. the Horcruxes. Yeah. Something that just occurred to me is that I see a sudden parallel between. Dumbledore and Voldemort, both of them wanting the stone that's going to somehow make them happy in the, in the way that yeah. they see in the mirror. Gonna, he's going to get his sister back. He, uh, you know, Voldemort is going to be all powerful, and both of them are kind of grasping at this stone. It's two different stones, but that's this this magical item which is going to do it for them. Harry, on the other hand, at the end of the series, drops the stone in the woods. Yeah, and I mean that's what makes him the ultimate hero, right? Exactly, his yeah. selflessness, mm-hmm. and so, his, so saying, and the fact that a, that he doesn't see the true power as being some magical thing that's going to give him, you know, this sort of power over death or whatever. He sees true power as being something totally different. Yep. Which which kind of is left over after Lily, the sense of internal power versus mm-hmm. you know something you can possess and use. Which seems to be Dumbledore and Voldemort's yeah. uh, drive. Yep. Okay. So the Quidditch game begins, and you know Hermione and Ron give Harry their last goodbyes because they're pretty sure he's going to die, being that Snape is refereeing the game. <laughs> so except know, they take they their wands. Figure. That's right. Which, they take their wands with them. Neville's very concerned. But the weird and, thing uh, is that they're taking their wands as something they would never be without their wands. Right. So why are people? Just, why why is that a surprise? Not, yeah. I mean, the right to carry a wand is a is like a a right in the wizarding world, but is, is this an oversight or maybe yeah. first years just don't have wands? No, or I, not, I think. Why would people I, leave their wands back in the common rooms when they go to a Quidditch game? Right. They they would always have their wands, yeah. but I don't think Rowling had worked that out yet by the you know when she was writing this part. So. Oh, or she was just trying to make it dramatic, you know, noticing that they had their wands out, that everyone was noticing, you know. Who knows? Yeah. Or, well, or maybe first Ron slips his up his sleeve, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it surprises Neville. He doesn't understand why they would have their wands with them. But anyway, they plan to use the same spell that that Malfoy used on Neville mm-hmm. on Snape if he, you know, 
if he tries anything. Yeah, way up there. You know, this air. is very bold of them. <laughs> yeah. Can you if just would, imagine would... a couple of first year Gryffindors whip out their wands <laughs> and try to try to attack Snape of all people? And at the yeah. same time, like how Gryffindor esque that actually is. Yeah, exactly. Totally. I totally identify with that, so I'm all for it. Although now I'm wondering why Ron didn't get his wand out when Malfoy was giving him a hard time later. No, they just it goes to fist because yeah. I think they just don't know enough magic, mm. and you know naturally. Yeah, and probably that's uh, what he grew up around. You know, mm-hmm. wrestling yeah. with his brothers. Mm-hmm. So, but I think you're right. It's just it, as first years, they're still not used to this instinctive reaction of using magic. Whereas, you know, a few years later, that's everything is magic. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know the game begins and he does great. In fact, he catches the snitch very quickly. He lands Snape's. Very annoyed. Hey, and, did you uh, notice that through this is like the only time in the entire books that we actually leave Harry's point of view? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Except but, for uh, like whole chapters in the Prime Minister's office or something, but this is the only time she writes this way. Yep, where it's sort Omniscient? of in the point of view. Well, there's at least a couple of lines, you know, where it's from mm-hmm. the point all, of view. All of a sudden they're back Hermione in the stands. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's the only time. That's interesting. Oh, good point. And then... So Dumbledore is right beside him as soon as he lands, because mm-hmm. you know because he can apparate inside of Hogwarts. But well, that's, that's we crazy. don't know that he can apparate inside of Hogwarts. We never hear that. That's just the film. We never know that. No, Mm-mm. I don't think he can apparate inside of Hogwarts. He's an extremely well, fast runner, then. Yeah, <laughs> he's, but but he has he has Fox, you know, because he leaves in something which looks remarkably like apparition. But uh, in in book five, but right, that's true. He does he does use Fox as a kind of portal to mm-hmm. kind of. But yeah, I think you're. I, I think he moves fast because he has to, and I think that that's a magical thing. I never dawned on me till you said it. But yeah, the fact that he's there that quickly, yeah. You're not going to pull out the S word again, are you, Noah? Stalker. Oh, he's <laughs> stalking Harry. I think he's a stalker. Own... <laughs> uh, in a good way. If it's ever a good one. no, yeah. he's there. He's there to protect Harry because the after way. the game is over, he's he's slightly vulnerable. So this are you is saying again, we fathers are stalkers? Huh? No, no, <laughs> no. I meant he. I meant he's following Harry in the fatherly type of way. He's yeah, looking over him, not stalking him. But is that the Dumbledore we see in Book Seven? I think he's more manipulative than that. He's more when you see that he's willing to sacrifice Harry at some point. He's there's. I don't think he's as fatherly as we as Rowling would like us to believe at this point. Yeah, can't. Dumbledore's a bad guy. I don't know if you knew. <laughs> well, Yikes! I would I would say he's not 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 as not a total good guy anymore. He's than not as righteous. A total bad guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I'm just saying in terms of his you know meticulously following everybody in the castle, specifically Harry. Sure, it's out of you know some you know devotion to him, but also but also interest knowing how tied Harry is to Voldemort's fall. Yeah, and he's—he's. You know, he's, I think he's playing chess. He's playing chess with Harry and with mm. circumstances and with the cloak and all of it is just—he's—he's—he feels this obligation to fight back against Voldemort, and Voldemort is not there yet, and he doesn't realize that Voldemort is part of this yet. But he—he he feels that it's his responsibility to manage events, and he knows that the Wizarding universe is gonna do certain things as long as he can put nudges in the right places and i think he's playing this the entire time he's carefully trying to to manipulate things the magical world the magical reality toward what he knows is supposed to happen 
For the greater good. Hey, for the well, for no. the greater good. <laughs> Pig for slaughter. A whole new kind of greater good, thing. Right. Well, that... So, one last scene. Harry, after the game, he's flying up on his broomstick because, as you said, Steve, it is suddenly night. Yeah. <laughs> a few, you know, maybe a half hour after the game. An and hour. And he follows Snape into the woods to meet mm-hmm. Quirrell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very... We only get segments of the language because Harry doesn't hear it all. But, of course, it's perfect so such that... Harry believes Snape is out to get the stone, and Quirrell's trying to protect it. But why actually, Why doesn't he hear it all? Why doesn't he hear the whole thing? Right. Because this owl hoots at the exact moment to block certain things from his hearing. Of course. Ooh. So you wonder where Dumbledore was in this scene? He was the owl. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, go back to the very beginning of the book. What happens right before Dumbledore appears in Privet Drive? Oh, an owl hoots loudly. No, an owl flies over. So Dumbledore the Owl is now in the forest making sure that everything is okay. You think think Dumbledore's an owl? No, he probably hid an owl with his wand. He probably hid an an owl with his wand so that it would hit. Oh, okay, so you're seeing Dumbledore. Dumbledore's sitting on a branch. He's got a little owl next to him. He's he's chilling out, eating his lemon drops, (laughs) pokes the owl with his wand. He's out of there. You know what? That sounds like the behavior that, of a stalker. That's okay. true stalker, stalker Dumbledore, Dumbledore right there. It. Yeah. I, I just want to go. I want to go back for a second because um, I see you had it in the the thing here, but the comment about Snape reading minds. Oh yeah. Yeah, Harry says that it seemed as if Snape could read minds, or he felt that way sometimes mm-hmm. when Snape was staring at him. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, actually, using legitimacy. Sure. This is the second time in the books. This is the second time we get that line? Uh, second time second? We, we get a strong... Sug- uh, that's at the end of the troll attack. Yep. Snape, it right, says right, Snape gave right. Harry a swift, piercing look, and Harry looked at the floor, which probably means that Snape was trying to find out what really happened, and Harry, yep. by instinct, blocked it. Broke right. concentration, yeah. Right. So, so this is cool. the second I time. Think we, I think when someone's uh, using a... Legilimens on you. You you have a sense that they're invading your mind, uh, but it seems that Snape can do a little bit on the side without you noticing. Well, and I don't think everybody would notice, but but remember, Harry has this sort of sixth sense about this stuff. I mean, he senses things around him that other people don't, and right. I mean that's why he's so good at defense against the dark arts. You know, I and mean, Snape's he, also a really good Legilimens. So yes, he is. Mm-hmm. If he fools Voldemort, he sure is. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's occlumency, but you know, same thing. But. Yeah. All right, so, and there, there pretty much ends chapter thirteen, Nicholas Flamel. Okay, so now we move to chapter fourteen, which is titled Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback. So we finally start to get into the wonderful world of dragons, and uh, the the chapter actually starts off continuing off of where chapter thirteen ends on this theme of Harry um, and Professor Quirrell. So I thought it was pretty interesting as the chapter starts, the narrator leads us as uh, not only do the trio does the trio not suspect Quirrell, but they start to see him in almost some sort of heroic light. Like he is standing up to Snape to protect the stone. Um, Harry smiles at him at certain time whenever they pass and Ron defends him when people sort of make fun of his stutter. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting that, you know, he's sort of seen as a hero. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Harry is so observant, um, kind of in general, 
But I feel like he's really awful at, um, you know, seeing past his hatred and his bias. Like, he's incredibly judgmental. So this isn't surprising to me at all that he just goes with his initial feelings of Snape. And, you know, Snape is the baddie and just totally, you know, lifts Quirrell up to be this great heroic man. Which is very Gryffindor of him to go very much off of his emotions and sort of stick with that gut no matter what. Yep. Well, it's very true to the first half of the half of the series, when you have Harry being, in his mind, turning into whatever things he needs to be to defeat Voldemort. So he's getting powerful and he's learning spells and he's becoming, you know, a good dueler and he's, you know, has all this great stuff around him which he thinks makes him strong. Well, his his um, automatic assumption of right and wrong is also one of the things which is not going to do him in good stead. And which is book five, it all gets taken away, which is the point of book five. So um, you're seeing it here already, exactly like you said. He's just assuming that his point of view is correct. Right. Yeah. And it's also good on Joe. I mean, she. it's hard to remember back to the first time you read the book, but I, the first time you read the book, you're totally buying it. Yep, Snape's Absolutely. the baddie and, and Quirrell's the good guy. And, uh, you know, you totally buy it till the beginning of that last chapter. So. Yep. yep. Well, he treats Harry so awful. How could you think otherwise? Exactly. Yeah. But that just shows what, I mean, she did such a great job of writing this, you know. I mean, you can quibble on this and that and the next thing, but just the the, the great way that she pulls us through and and. and tricks us over and over and we don't realize it till later some of it we don't realize till the end of the seventh book it's yeah. true she's a yeah. tricky tricky woman oh yeah a flighty temptress oh my, oh, my. <laughs> okay <laughs> so but it really uh, i mean we were talking about prisoner of azkaban before and thinking about that it wasn't until the end of prisoner of azkaban that as readers at that time we really realized just how tricky she was being and i remember going back into book one to this point and going okay well what did this mean then and you know you really it just gave a whole new meaning to all of this stuff which is Mm -hmm. kind of where we are now even yep i know i pick up things every time i read it i pick up something new it's great Mm -hmm. amazing genius one thing, all right. one thing that is not really new to us is the fact that Hermione is going absolutely nutso over her exams, starting to study 10 weeks early. Like, mm-hmm. my goodness, girl, get it together. Well, I mean, yeah, again, it's... that's her eagle, right? Anything that has to do with schoolwork is Hermione's mm-hmm. Ravenclaw nature yeah. shining. And here it is once again. Yeah. yeah interesting, though, in the story terms, too, this is something we don't see in the later books. We just jumped a whole month. It's now the end of March. Yeah, that's right. true. You know, it's like, like well, oh, well, I wrote the calendar. <laughs> Go on the Lexicon website. It's all the calendar right down to the days of all this stuff. So, But when you look at it and you realize that what we've just been through is the end of December. Now, by the end of this chapter, it'll be the beginning of May. So half of the, almost the entire second term of the school, the school term is in two chapters, and we only really see two main events in those two chapters. Mm-hmm. So in the later book, she, she happened? not really. Uh, I don't know what her original plan would have been, but this just shows you how much editing there was done on this book compared to, say, book six when we get it almost day to day. Do you think she wrote right. other things in between there that got cut? I don't know. Sure. I, I, I but I, I keep finding myself in that that kind of humorous point of view of thinking that. I mean, you realize there was nothing on the sixth floor of the castle until book six. <laughs> but but really? but until book six, all of us believed there was stuff on 
the sixth floor. She just hadn't mentioned it. Well, right. now, actually, no. If she doesn't mention it, it simply doesn't exist. It isn't like it's really there and she's just telling us about it. But, you know, you say, well, did she write other stuff? Well, if she didn't, then literally nothing happened. But we hate to step that far out of the story. Now, let's go back in there and assume that all sorts of cool stuff happened. And Right, okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, people were always wondering what color are Sirius's eyes. Well, you realize that until she said a color, he didn't have a color of eyes. It isn't like he's a real person who has an eye color and we just didn't know it. That's crazy. Yeah, but that's Sirius where we are. Sirius has eyes, Steve. But, but <laughs> if she doesn't say the color, and if she never decides on a color, he literally has no color. But we as fans like to say, well, yeah, he's a real person. Of course he has a certain color. Well, nothing, if she didn't come up with it, it literally doesn't exist. It isn't like this world exists and she just hasn't told us everything. You were talking of crazy. Of course I know. Like I know, I know. I'm talking <laughs> lexicon crazy here. That's okay. Um, I just wanted to bring up one small little thing that I noticed that was really cool. On page 229 of the U.S. edition, Harry is looking up Dittany in the uh, 1000 Magical Herbs and Fun Guy, mm-hmm. which is another one of those fun connections because it shows up again in book seven. That's, That's all. right. Yep. That's all. Yeah. It's, it's Dittany shows up in book six, too. It comes up quite a bit. Yeah. And, and while while they are in the, the library, Haggard comes tumbling in and um there's he's asking them if they're still researching flamel in the library and it made me wonder if he knows of any of the recent events to get past fluffy and other protections is he trying to you know talk with them to fish for more clues and also what are it always i always wonder what he and dumbledore and snape are talking about behind closed doors as all of this is going on in the castle well i mean at one point in these chapters i Forgot to write it down. I don't remember exactly where it is. But Hagrid says that he, even he doesn't know what is protecting the stone. Right, so, I saw that too. Right, yeah. so, so I doubt that he's privy to many of these secret talks. You know, I mean, it's probably just Snape and Dumbledore talking about whatever. And Hagrid is purely there to, you know, keep fluffy. Yeah, but if you yeah. go back to my, you know, over, you know, the the bone I can't let go of, which is the whole idea of Dumbledore running everything. Well, I think he he's sets Hagrid up for some of the things that Hagrid does. I mean, if you think about you know the the way Hagrid, for instance, quickly tells Hermione something, and that's coming up a little bit later. But as soon as she says one nice thing to him, well, either you know he's a bigger idiot than we can possibly believe, or he's been told by Dumbledore, well, you know, you you can it's all right, you can let a little bit slip because you want to give him some clues, and he's looking for an excuse to do that. Huh. Anyway. I, I find that I find that doubtful, though. I don't I don't see how he would be able to tell Hagrid to to let things slip accidentally, because that would mean Hagrid is actually a mastermind of of being able to cleverly, you know, let things go. I think more likely that he legitimately did. Um, you know, let loose this information. He probably counted on Ron, Hermione, and Harry to kind of poke mm-hmm. at that stuff. Yeah, he just kind point. of counted on Hagrid's being very free with that information. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he told Hagrid to, uh, you know, let it out. I think he kind of used Hagrid possibly. Sure. If yeah, that makes that him. makes more sense. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's on like he's under like a long term imperious curse, where he he has free <laughs> will. He can do whatever he wants, but Dumbledore puts the thoughts into his mind. Oh God. <laughs> terrible i'm infecting you guys with my theory (laughs) no no i love it it's great Uh, no but it makes sense i think in truth though hagrid is incredibly irresponsible yes he doesn't think things through yes great you know interesting fella yes but you know 
I'll, you know, I'll say again, Dumbledore counted on on Hagrid's uh, inability to do this stuff. Unfortunately, we'll we'll get to it with the with the dragon egg and then the information that comes thereof. You know, that that's really troubling. And as a you know, as an older guy, you know, what what's going on with Hagrid? What like what contributed to this kind of character that he's just so you know trustworthy or so um, irresponsible? He's improved. I'm just kidding. Well, but, but someone in the forum said it was because he's part giant. You know that contributes to you know, a social disorder in a way. Ah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, it, and also I, I just I mean if you look at it though, the whole this whole chapter tells a story of this guy who involves three eleven-year-old kids in something which he knows is illegal. Not only involves them, but includes them in taking care of the dragon, doesn't even seem to care when they get seriously injured, and then yeah. lets them take the fall for his stupidity. And I then mean, sort everything out. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, sorts them out by taking him into the forest. I mean, if this was the only book we had, Hagrid would be the biggest, you know, nobody would like Hagrid. But you can't help but like Hagrid. But, yeah. Well, that this seems to be part of his charm, his... Uh, you yes. know, stupidity is kind of a harsh <laughs> word, but that that's part of the charm. Mm, I guess. Well, I mean, we, we've already determined that he's pretty dense. So, I mean, I get it. Makes sense. Yeah. But uh, charming is a good word. I mean, he's a charming galoot, you know? Yeah. And also very motherly. Right, well, We will get yeah. to that in a second. <laughs> All right. The whole motherly thing, which... Anyway, yeah. So they they find um, as he walks off, they spot that he's been looking in some books about dragons, which is super exciting because I love dragons. Um, but we'll get to that a little bit later um, for our special feature. But we know that Haggard is clearly being shifty. Um, he's do, he's up to something. They don't really know what. And so they eventually take a visit down to his hut. And before we find out much about the dragon, they're trying to use Haggard to get more information about the stone and what's protecting it and everything. And this is a really interesting part where Hermione uses a new talent of hers that we haven't really seen before. Um, it comes up a couple of other times in the series, but she's basically using flattery and buttering up to Hagrid to make him feel important, which we obviously know is something that, you know, he's going to fall victim to. Do we see this as sort of malicious on Hermione's part? I mean, I would definitely say manipulative. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I mean, uh, what woman out there hasn't done this at least once? I mean, she's using her feminine wiles to get what she wants, quite honestly. I can't say that I've never done it. So, <laughs> Oh, the, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> yes. Kat, you're stereotyping your own gender. You're right, yeah, no, I am. She's, she's also stereotyping us guys that apparently we fall for it. I mean, I do. Well, have so. you not? <laughs> yeah, Are you telling me you've never fallen for that? No, no, never. No. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> <laughs> but she's incredibly intuitive for an 11-year-old. Yeah. She is. She's, does, yeah. does an 11-year-old have feminine wiles? Um, <laughs> maybe in a way, not in the same way that, you know, a 19 or 20-year-old does, but mm. yeah. She's an, she's an apprentice woman is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, uh, yeah, different <laughs> intentions. You know, an mm. older woman may use them for different reasons. Right. Well, I it certainly anybody, works. If either one of them was flattering Hagrid or if... If maybe they just offered him some some fish, I don't know. He probably would have said the same thing. Fish? 
But I, but I think, I think, I don't know that it would have worked the same if Harry would have said it. Or I think it's, it was, it was definitely a Hermione thing, you know. She, she's that she has the kind of character that, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. But she, her personality, her relationship with Hagrid, is such that he would go, he would, he would want to please her in that way. Where I don't know that Harry could have gotten away with that. It, he, it would have come <laughs> that off been false. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it clearly works for Harry later whenever he tries to do it with um, Professor Slughorn, which is absolutely my favorite scene of any of the movies. Yeah, I'd have to say so, too. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But we can come back to that later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in years. So we find out, um, we finally get the dragon egg. Um, They notice it. Ron recognizes it. Obviously, he's more familiar with dragons. And Hagrid talks about learning uh, how he won the dragon egg in a card game with a stranger. We later find out that's actually um, Quirrell being sneaky. So the the egg the egg hatches. And first, let's talk about the fact that the dragon is supposed to be fed brandy and chicken blood. That is disgusting. Like, where where do they get brandy in the wild? That's what I'm wondering. And enough of it, because right. and how many you know how many chickens did Hagrid slaughter? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Although it's interesting because I there's a the whole Welsh dragon. That legend of the Welsh dragon, which mm-hmm. is fighting right. against the white dragon, was subdued by digging a deep pit and putting mead at the bottom, and the dragon went in after the mead, and then they covered it up. So apparently, uh-huh. you know, love for alcoholic drink is part of the the, the lore of these things. So they're alcoholics, really cool. basically. No, because it probably affects them differently. But I, I'm going to go back to where do they get that many bottles of brandy? Cause, yeah, you know, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Hagrid has a personal store. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure he's making, does. He's making some supplier very well off. Yeah. So. Do you think maybe Somebody in the in wild the they can eat like the ingredients of brandy? I mean, I don't drink, so I don't know what's in brandy, but it's it's fortified wine. It's wine that's okay. Been so re- maybe I mean yeah. maybe they eat a bunch of fermented grapes and they're it's the same mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I, uh, or or whatever it is that that they do eat some quality of that, whether it's not actually alcoholic beverage, but some quality of that fermenting process or something matches what they eat. But yeah, it's... And again, the chicken blood, there you go. I mean, how many chickens? He got all worked up about the, the, you know, in Chamber of Secrets about a couple of roosters getting killed by something, and turns out he's slaughtering chickens left and right to... I mean, I mean, um, it's true. There's a quote later where there's just, uh, you know, chicken feathers on the floor and... uh, and brandy, I believe, so we know where that's going. Brandy but I mean, but Hagrid just... is motivated by different things at this point. I mean, this is purely for, you know, his, his baby. Own interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his baby, exactly. Those poor chickens. So through all this, it's clear that Hagrid is again making some pretty dumb decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's not realizing he has divulged information to Quirrell. He mm-hmm. is keeping a dragon in a wooden house, which mm-hmm. Hermione exclaims, "Hagrid, you live in a wooden house." I mean, that isn't really. <laughs> That doesn't really stick with him, though. Like, bless his heart, but, like, what the heck are you thinking, boy? Like, Mm -hmm. this is insane. Mm -hmm. You know, something just struck me. Can you imagine, and this is, I'm sorry, jumping back just slightly, but can you imagine Hagrid playing cards? I mean, his hands are the size of dustbin (laughs) lids, according to the first chapter. I mean, how did he hold the card? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I don't think it was very good. No, I think he's, he was surprised that he won. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And during this... Malfoy, well, so actually it's a little later. Malfoy um, overhears the three of them talking about 
the hatching on the egg because they are talking about it. Um, and I'm, I'm shocked that they don't get overheard more in the series. They're always whispering things together and truly people you know, are getting suspicious after too long because mm-hmm. I'm thinking if I'm a kid at Hogwarts and then I see those three, it's like, oh, look, those three are chatting about a way about conspiracy theories again in the corner and I'm over it. Like they're being way too shady. But, you know, the whole idea, you want to talk about a stalker. What, why is Malfoy way over by the Gryffindor table? I mean, that's three tables away. There's no reason why he would have had to walk all the way over there unless he was stalking, trying to hear stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, he is so obsessed with getting Harry in trouble that mm-hmm. he would yeah. do anything at this point to make it happen. Oh, that's true. Then again, Harry, Harry and Ron are pretty obsessed with getting Malfoy into trouble, too. Didn't they sit around and toast marshmallows and think up schemes to get rid of him? Get him <laughs> yeah. They did. That's true over Christmas break, yep. I mean, that's one thing about these books. It's okay to be prejudiced and intolerant as long as you're prejudiced and intolerant against the right people. Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And yeah, that's just part of their natural play. Well, it's, so, just, it's the it's the literature format that she's writing in. The schoolboy story always has those, those kinds yeah. of bad characters who are supposed to get their comeuppance. That's the deal. Yeah. So. Yep. And so coming back to this issue of Haggard being the mommy. Mm-hmm. I see this as a, some sort of gender slash parental issues here. I mean, he's referring to himself as Norbert's mommy. Why not his? Why not his dad? I don't know. Well, I mean, he never really had a mother, right? I mean, he has no, no real family to speak of. I mean, especially mm-hmm. like at this point. So, I, I imagine that you know, feeling that connection with something would be pretty nice for him. I mean, it's sure. not like he can have kids, right? I mean, can well, he? Think, think about it, though. Haggard is a. He's a caretaker. He's often offering treats to the kids. Um, okay, that's that's a little creepy, but you know, <laughs> but but you're right. It, it, you, you, he is. He has that maternal sort of aspect to his personality very much. Yep, it's the Hufflepuff yeah. in he's, him. It, yeah, but he's not Hufflepuff. But excuse yeah. me. <laughs> I, no, I just meant that they're 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 caring. Hufflepuffs are caring, and they're you know they're giving. So you're saying that even though he's a Gryffindor, that would have if you would have been looking at him and saying which house to be in, that would be his other house is Hufflepuff? Because I think that works. Yeah, I mean, That's we've, we've talked to, yeah. about that many times, yeah, about how he's mm-hmm. very much a, a split for us, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Hufflepuff aside, though, I'd be interested to see him as a potentially feminine character. I mean, they're considering his half-breed-ness, you know, it does make him kind of less of a, of a man in the, you know, contemporary sense. So just by nature of that, of his being half-breed, mm-hmm. um, we could look at him as, a, as like a as an icon for gender politics or for like, you know, messing with it. Cause you yeah. know, he's kind of almost bestial the way he is. He, you know, he's very hairy. Mm-hmm. He's huge. Right. And yet he does have this maternal side. Yeah, very much. So, yeah, I think there, it, that's what I was kind of trying to get at is that there, I think there's a bit of gender bending going on here. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean too, I think that part of that comes from his, again, his childhood. I mean, he never really had a mother, so he looked towards other people and you know, that the things that we do or don't experience, when we're younger are the things that we either try to be or try not to be when we get older. Yeah, that's So the fact true. that he didn't have a mother, he was trying to be that for other people. Yeah. Yeah, I think very much. Well, and in this scene, we, we do get Norbert, and he hatches, and it's a really great scene for Hagrid. Um, he's super happy, except for the fact <laughs> that Malfoy ruins the day, because Hagrid notices that someone is peeking in the window, and then they look out and notice that you know, Mag- Malfoy is taking off in the distance and they know that he has seen the dragon. 
But like, what if he had not seen the dragon? Norbert would have gotten hungry one day when Haggard was in the pumpkin patch and eaten Thing. And that is more sad to me than <laughs> Norbert getting sent away. So, well, I mean, uh, uh, Malfoy helps a lot more than he plans to, I think. Um, yeah. You know, more often than not. It, it happens a lot in the series. I mean, he spies and then it sets off kind of a really important set of events that changes the the course of that chapter, that book, whatever. So, mm-hmm. Good he for Malfoy. He's a what? A plot mover. He is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is that another another example of the wizarding universe tending toward things happening the way they're supposed to happen, and yeah. people are in some ways part of that, either by choice or by accident? Some magical connection. I mean, seriously, involved. if you look at what comes up next when, when Malfoy goes to, improbably enough, visit Ron in the hospital wing, I mean... That's crazy. And then not only that, but he asks to borrow a book. That's crazy. And the book has the letter in it. That's crazy. The The only way you can, you can either say, okay, that just wasn't very well plotted, or you can say, yeah, but there's something that makes things happen the way they're supposed to in this magical universe. Something kind of tends things in the direction of what they're supposed to be. And that's why Ron was so shocked, because it's just, how could this happen? How could this crazy series of events happen. Steve, I'm pretty sure it's Wizard God. <laughs> that would be Dumbledore. No. Uh, well, you know, I guess in a sense, if you're going to, if you if you look at the universe as being as having a sense of destiny to itself right. apart right. from the inhabitants of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm g- going towards. I mean, you know, not not actually religious, but mm-hmm. it is kind of funky that, especially in this first book, everything is working for itself. There is a story to unravel. Mm-hmm. More and you more, know? I'm believing your theory that, I mean, not that I never not believed it, but that Dumbledore's behind all of it. Well, honestly, it gets to the point, the more you look at this, and I, I wrote that, The Reader's Guide to, to Philosopher's Stone, and when I was writing that book, I just kept thinking, okay, this just doesn't work, unless I assume that Dumbledore is working behind the scenes to some extent and he doesn't know everything it isn't that but there are too many things that just sort of seem to happen coincidentally which either i have to believe that rolling wasn't very good at writing this book which i don't think is true and i think when you look at dumbledore's discussions later in in later books when he kind of comes clean especially in book six and seven i think we see you know we we see harry kind of getting the realization that dumbledore has always been, you know, we can say stalker and laugh, but always been there, always been been a little bit behind the scenes. I mean, when, when Harry is looking at the mirror and he hears a sound and suddenly kind of brings him back to his senses, who made, who made that sound? Well, you know, to me, that would be Dumbledore watching and saying, okay, that's enough. <laughs> and, but well, if, as, as we said, he, you know, it seems like a lot of the time he's not, not just planning it meticulously, but he's, he's uh, letting things happen. Exactly. He, oh, you know, he's giving absolutely. opportunities. In, in a way, it's like a chess game, but in in a sense, of, you, know, you talk about the chess pieces having very limited ability to make choices and input, well, then you have the chess game more in terms of where all the pieces are going to do what they're going to do, but you can right. nudge things. You can you can make sure that the cloak is where it's supposed to be, and and hopefully things are going to work out. You you can't see the future, but you have a sense that this is where things are going. And if, as long as you make the right choices as the one who does understand everything, those choices are what make the difference. That's what makes the future happen the way it's supposed to. 
Again, right. back to Which the choices. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Choices versus destiny or, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, mm-hmm. innate. And then we could go back to talking about the sorting again, but let's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we see another Weasley kid enter the chessboard. Charlie comes into mm-hmm. the picture because he suddenly becomes the answer to all of their problems. Mm-hmm. Harry immediately, um, out of the blue, thinks of Charlie as the solution to get rid of Norbert so mm-hmm. that Malfoy can't rightfully tattle on Hagrid and get him into all sorts of trouble. Um, and so um, Charlie is the answer. They're going to send Norbert off to Romania, which is something I wish I could do is go off to Romania and work with Charlie and the dragons for a day. But um, I, I so when they're sort of setting up this, um, this passing of Norbert to um, Charlie and his team, um, how do we think they actually contacted Charlie? Because they get a response from Charlie from Hedwig saying that some of his team is going to come by and get had um, get Norbert from the from the tower. But surely, surely Hedwig did not go all the way to Romania. I mean, maybe, but I, well, I, just I mean, don't... I I googled it, and it, approximately from London to I forget the name of the town in Romania is about twenty three hours away driving. So, you know, by air is always faster than by car. So I don't see why uh, she couldn't have gone there and back within a day. That's well, and true. she went to whatever southern climbs it was that Sirius was hanging around in. Owls went, birds went back and forth there. So I think, yeah. and remember that it's, it's not, they're not a natural owl in the sense of, you know, that she wouldn't necessarily have to actually flap her way the whole way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there could have been magic involved in that as well. Just, you know, if, I don't know. That's fair. I Maybe just assume that, I assume that, that you know, Hedwig just went off to Romania. I guess it's because I'm not, I'm from such a big state and I'm used to everything being so spread out and I don't, I forget how relatively close things are Mm -hmm. in Europe. So it's probably just my mindset. She took the Owl Expressway. (laughs) You know, she meant... Okay, now I'm, now I'm imagining, you know, kind of jumping on and... Is this I mean, like yeah, the exactly. jet stream that's in Finding Nemo down in Australia? Exactly. Oh, that's what yeah. I was, I knew exactly there was something was that I was connecting to. Yeah, Finding Nemo. It's, exactly. Yeah, it's, the, it's the jet stream. I mean, they all talk to each other. These are relatively mm-hmm. smarter animals, as we know, than, mm-hmm. you know, muggle animals. And so they're all, so now, now we've got all the owls on the jet stream, and of course they're not having to flap their wings much, and so they're chatting with each they're other. Where are you off to? Up. I'm heading for Romania. Really? <laughs> Romania? Wow, that's pretty cool. You must be going to the Dragon Reservation. Yes, I am. Where are you going? Oh, this is my, uh, see ya. Yeah, okay, bye. So, so Steve, yeah, the owl goes in the flu network and says an owl speak. <laughs> Jake and I! You know, oh you know she can go. <laughs> totally makes sense. Yeah, okay, all right then. See, isn't Not it sure great the way everything, when we do this, everything connects up, and before long, we're right back where we started, and it all ties up so nicely. And <laughs> It was Dumbledore. There Dumbledore you go. It's, and happen. Dumbledore is making it happen. There you go. Wow. <laughs> He's a little puppet with the strings. Mm-hmm. Little exactly. marionettes. But see, so so anyway, so Charlie is going to be the answer to the problem, and his friends are heading that way anyway. So they're going to pick up this this owl, owl, this dragon. Now, for some reason, they think it's going to be perfectly reasonable to put a dragon in a wooden crate. Oh my gosh! Again with the wood <laughs> and these people. They think it's perfectly reasonable to carry this wooden crate with a huge dragon in it under a cloak. All the way to the top of the highest tower in the castle. And the, was that feasible? The, How did they do that? Okay, I think we're talking magic, as in the cloak is doing more than anybody would have realized. Harry doesn't realize Ooh. that the power of this cloak is that it will protect. 
that's what makes it different than any other uh, any invisibility mm-hmm. cloak. Oh, right, the fact the that in- it will interoperability or never. Yeah, it'll word. just it'll it'll cover two people and a crate full of dragon. That's pretty impressive. I mean, then if he's all by himself, how in the world is that thing not you know? How does he not stumble over it? Well, it's you know, I guess he's just used to things like that changing shape and size in the in the magical world, but. You know, that's the only logical thing to think of is it it had to be some pretty good magic in that cloak for that to be a reasonable plan. And Harry had to have some sense that it would work for that to be a reasonable plan. Yep. Right. And it seemed like the only thing they could do. But do you think maybe the cloak somehow eased their their way up or, you know, made it? Made things just slightly easier, moved things out of the way. Well, the there ground. is there is that you know feather light spell that Harry wanted to cast on his trunk, to be, you know, in the beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. So maybe that's something that they've practiced with you know charms class or something that they right. would be able to make something lighter. I would certainly think. I mean, good grief! These are two eleven or twelve year old kids trying to haul a crate full of dragon up to. Because remember how big the castle is. It's seven floors, and that's without the towers. Right. I mean, this and is carrying a box. And they haven't and, yeah. learned locomotor mortis yet or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. locomotor trunk in this case, or dragon. But it's amazing. Right. And, and the fact that it works just makes you think, okay, something else has to be going on here. I mean, you can either say, well, that wouldn't work, or you could say, well, no, something else had to have been going on here for this the to The invisible, visible forces. Work. Dumbledore. Yeah. Well, well Dumbledore, well, line, yeah. One of the lines says that, you know, Harry couldn't believe how... Exactly. That they actually did it. Yes. So I would be willing to believe, mm-hmm. like as you said, Steve, that maybe the cloak was somehow helping mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And if you you look at the third film, and one of the things that I think for all of us we just loved about it was that magic just seemed to permeate that castle. I mean, mm-hmm. it just things just happened, those pictures and everything. You just had this sense that magic was just an integral part of the castle, not just some little special effect here and there. It was just everywhere, and. So then again, think about them hauling this crate in a castle where there's this magic everywhere all the time. And yeah, for them even to have thought, hey, this is a good idea. Let's try this. They must have had some sense of, well, we've got the cloak, so we know it'll work. And maybe not knowing exactly how, but somehow they must have had a sense of the fact that if we have that cloak on, we should be able to do it. Yeah, still still kind of tricky, but, you know, maybe some, some well, listeners yeah, can I'm reaching. continue this for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, though, they do make it. And before they take off, there's a sad parting between Hagrid and Norbert, slash, who we later learn is Norberta. Um, oh. I thought about, you know, why did he make that mistake? But then I thought maybe we shouldn't even go there. Um, <laughs> so when they eventually they do, you know, it's successful. The dragon dudes take him off and they're bound for Romania. And. While they're still, uh, or I guess it's, no, it's before they send him off um, that Harry and Hermione happen upon McGonagall and Draco out there. Draco's obviously trying to get someone in trouble because he knows about the pass off because he read the note. And we see McGonagall with her hairnet, which is really um, funny to me because I'm just thinking that girl's got to keep her locks prim and proper. Yeah. But <laughs> it's such a picture. She's so fierce. But, uh-huh. um, and. <laughs> And so they, they do get Norbert off and they're, they're excited. They're thinking, wow, we can't believe that nothing went wrong. And surely enough, Murphy's law, dun, 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 busted by filch, suckers. So yeah, it's, it, it sucks that they get attacked in the next chapter by filch, but you know, yeah. what are you going to do? But you, you know what? Something just occurred to me. Is it that easy to just fly up to Hogwarts and land on the highest tower? Can anybody just do that? 
There's no magical protection or magical Well, I mean, there is, right? Because at the end of Half-Blood Prince... Um, but, no, I mean, but that's when Voldemort has come back. Right, that's, right. that's that. But before that, apparently anybody, there's no, there's no guards, there's no, you know, de- mo- you know, detecting charms to let you know that somebody just dropped in on your, ty- you know, tallest tower, and now they're going to go flying away. I mean, wow. I think that's an oversight. There's got to be something. Or, I mean, Steve, do you not, or, do you or Dumbledore know? knew. Okay, go on. Oh, of course he knows. <laughs> it all goes back to Dumbledore, doesn't it? <laughs> He knows all, but yeah, I think uh, at this point in the series, you know, there's been enough, you know, peace since Voldemort's, uh, you know, vanishing that they they kind of have a little bit limited protection. So I think in future, you know, you don't have Dementors or uh, Death Eaters just flying in. There is some sort of active uh, defenses. Yeah. We know. So you're not you're the, not you're not seeing Filch down in his office on the first floor with a whole bunch of television monitors eating a banana and just watching each one to see what's going to happen. Especially since the monitors wouldn't work inside Hogwarts, yeah? No, I know that. All right. Magical monitors. Anyway, go on. There ends chapter 14. Okay, so then we're going to start this week's special feature. It's a new one. It's called The Beast Inquisition. And this week we're going to talk about dragons. So, um, you know, they come up many, many, many times in the Potter series and all throughout history. Um, So I'm just going to give a brief history about... um, the Norwegian Ridgeback um, in general. Um, according to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, it says that the Norwegian Ridgeback resembles the Hungarian the Hungarian Horntail, except that it has black ridges instead of a spiky tail. It's incredibly aggressive to other dragons and is a very rare breed. It feeds on land animals, but unlike most other breeds, also water-dwelling creatures. They can breathe fire much earlier than most breeds, anywhere from one to three months. So... Haggard really picked a winner, didn't he? He did. Well, really, really this is a feisty one because it like comes out shooting flames, mm-hmm. sparks. Anyway. Oh man! Yeah, if any fans out there want to draw the Norwegian Ridgeback, we'd love to feature that on the Alohomora side. Yeah, yeah cool. that would be great, huh? Nice drawing. And we'll name you on the next episode. Totally. <laughs> um, so we learned in these chapters that dragons are illegal to breed in the Wizarding World. I mean, besides the obvious, um, why do you think that is? They seem to be pretty useful, so why kind of shun them from society? I mean, they eat people, cat. Well, well, I, I, think said they're, bes- they're... I said besides the obvious. Yeah. And I also <laughs> thought about, like, I don't know. I'm not clear on it, and maybe it is clear to everyone else, and I'm just not picking it up. Like, is this only true for Britain that they're illegal to be bred? Um, because it mentions the Warlocks' Convention of 1709. Is that a national legislation or is that sort of internationally binding? Well, if that's following on, which I believe it is, that's, that's part of the whole time when the Ministry of Magic was created, when the, uh, the Department of Magical Creatures was created. All of these things happened between 1689 and 1709, and that was an international convention. Um, okay. So I would say it's international, but I don't think everybody follows it or is as, well, as clearly. picky, maybe. Yeah. Right. There obviously well, has to be some sort of exceptions because they're doing something in Romania. So, But see, that's a dragon reservation. That's The, the Ravnit reservation is there to keep the dragons under control. Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, they have probably certain enumerated exceptions in the law mm-hmm. to allow it in those sorts of areas. Because I think there's there's probably reservations for a lot of different kind of magical creatures, and I think dragons in particular, because they're so big and so violent and so hard to control, I think that's a 
that's why there's a specific set of rules about dragons, whereas maybe other creatures it's more general. Right. But mm-hmm. I think the reason that... I mean, the alternative would be to try to wipe them out. And the fact that they don't try to wipe them out, I think, goes to what you said, is that they are so useful and so important. And, you know, if you yeah. go into the, the kind of the folklore of dragons, and I mean, they're, there's a lot more to them than just being really nasty. And, and I shouldn't say nasty because they aren't, they aren't mean. They're just doing what they do. But there's a lot more to dragons. The intelligence, the, the magicalness, Absolutely. and the... You know, I think that they're... If if you go back again to the whole idea that the magical universe itself has a has a certain fabric to it, they're a pretty important part of that fabric of that tapestry of magic, and you can't just rip them out and get rid of them, but you can't let them fly around and eat up people either. Yeah, it's a, they're part of a balance. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And they're obviously important. I mean, Ollivander obviously recognizes their value. It's one of the only three wand cores he uses in his mm-hmm. wands. Yeah, dragon heart string. Well, I mean, and they show up in so much literature. I mean, you know, we have Smog and Lord of the Rings. I mean, mm-hmm. even in, like, um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Well, technically The Hobbit. Yeah, it's Hobbit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you knew what I Nerd. meant. Well, you knew people were going to bring that up, though. <laughs> That's true. But, I mean, you know, one of the characters, um, Eustace, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I mean, Voyage he turns Dawn into Treader, a dragon. Sure. And, I mean, mm-hmm. we even have, like, the cartoons, like, Puff the Magic Dragon. I mean, they're just, they're everywhere. Yes. I mean, even in um, I, while I was doing research for this, I found a lot of really great references. I mean, Joe, obviously, I mean, she didn't make up any names like you said before, Steve. I mean, she just she borrowed everything. I mean, this is from Greek mythology. It says there's an um, Asmenian dragon that is slain by Cadmus, who is a protective prince who was sent by his parents to retrieve his sister from Zeus. I mean, again, like, wow, you know. Cadmus, I mean, he was the first owner Pepperell. of the Resurrection Stone, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, huh. um, obviously, we even have the Latin word for dragon, which is Draco, being used twice in the series, obviously as a character, and then um, in the Hogwarts Crest, which, can anyone read Latin? Right. Yes, I can. Draco dormiens nuncum tetalandus. Right, never tickle a sleeping dragon. Exactly. That sounded awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think it's an... It's an awesome motto for a school. Well, what's it Very mean? Practical. What do we think it means? Never tickle a sleeping dragon. Don't yeah, screw with things. Don't screw with things that aren't your business. Oh, okay. That's so what it means. But I mean, the reason she chose it is because she wanted to do something slightly humorous, and that yeah. wasn't this sort of aspirational, you know, like we're all going to do better and be fantastic kind of a thing. She wanted something a little bit more pithy, and so that was why. Yeah. But. But I think it's great. I think you're exactly right. Never tickle a sleeping dragon. You know, it's such a great, on a on a basic sense, but also in a you know, don't mess with things. Let let, because that's part of the whole reason that there is seven a seven book story here is because somebody tickled that sleeping dragon. <laughs> right. There's there's a great editorial on MuggleNet that I'm going to put in the links, um, in the show notes for people who are interested in reading it. It's it talks about that whole, what the motto means. Hmm. It's cool. But one other... Oh, yeah. I posted that. You did? Well, that would make sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's one other great connection that I found. Um, in Roman mythology, Draco was actually a dragon that was killed by the goddess Minerva and was tossed into the sky upon his defeat. This is, yeah, and wow. it's, became a, it's now a constellation. Yeah. How, really how amusing, given the, the interaction those two have at the end of the chapter. Exactly. Draco and McGonagall. Oh. But all right, but bring, it, it, bring it, it back. What? 
because I, mean, I just look at at her use of dragon is more in the Tolkien kind of a sense, at least in, in the way I look at it, and that ties back into Arthurian legend, because Camelot was built on the or or I don't know if it's actually there's some some stories would say it was Camelot, but the the whole idea of the Welsh dragon and the British dragon and all of that, and then that that. It actually involves Merlin, and as a matter of fact, if you watch the television series Merlin, you'll see that in there. There is a dragon under Camelot, mm-hmm. and it's this whole idea of the dragon being this ancient magic, this um, ancient intelligence, which you can't mess with. You can't just, it's unlike many other creatures where you can control them. This is its own out-of-control creature, which the best you can do is try to hang on to it, but you can't. It signifies true power of magic, and I think that's what she's pulling in, this whole idea of a dragon being this magic in its rawest, most natural, most untamable sense. Yeah, but doesn't untamable kind of clash with intelligence? Because if we look at a lot of the dragons, you know, even in uh, Goblet of Fire, we can say that the Hungarian Horntail was kind of... uh, maybe starved a little bit or wasn't treated the best, but it seemed to be more just kind of thrashing. It wasn't intelligently trying to go after Harry. In fact, Harry was kind of evading it because, you know, this this beast was on a rampage. Right. So do we see do we see these dragons with the same intelligence as, say, in other series? No, like no. That, that was, I didn't mean it that way. I meant in terms of where is she drawing from when she thinks dragon? Is she thinking, you know kind of British European dragon? Is she thinking, you know, dragon in the more classical sense from ancient, like, what what kind of dragon image does she have in her mind? And to me, I'm thinking that it looks more like that British-style, European-style dragon, which is also where Tolkien got smog and things like this. And that's just, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Also, Asia, in Asian tradition, dragons obviously mm-hmm. permeate through art and uh in tradition, but, yeah, but, there, there, but there's a little different, a little different take on dragons in 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 the Eastern, I guess. And I was contrasting the two, I guess, is what I was saying. But yeah, there's there's dragons everywhere in mythology and folklore, and yeah. Well, bringing it back yeah. to to Potter, um, mm-hmm. why do we think Hagrid wants a dragon? I mean, is it for its many uses, or because he you know likes to walk on the wild side? Yeah, I would go with that. He just well, he loves magical creatures, and this is the ultimate magical creature. Mm-hmm. And we, as we know, he does specialize in trying to tame the untamable, right. often at his own uh, peril. <laughs> yeah, and I think what you just said—that's kind of what I was trying for and couldn't find—the ultimate magical creature. That's that's a good way to put it. That is what the dragon is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so how that's why he wants it. I mean, how do you think he got into care of magical creatures? I mean, does that just seem well, we to be in his is- nature? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe in, in his third year, he was you know an affinity for you know magical animals, misfits mm-hmm. as it were, because he himself is a misfit. So he also likes misfits in the magical animal kingdom. And the maternal thing that we were talking about that fits right in with that too. Yeah, his Hufflepuff right, is showing to... through again here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he can be a, a, like a parent to an actual human, then mm-hmm. the creatures are the next best thing for him. Cat, I still have problems with your theory that there's something about Hufflepuff that is essentially maternal. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be a good mother. I'm a man. No, I, I mean it in the in the caring um, in the caring sense of the word. Yeah, and I'm a second grade teacher, and kids call me mom all the time. So, oh wow, that's funny. <laughs> well, if anyone can uh, give me a theory about Hagrid being feminine, I'm I'm really feeling that. Like well, I want to I want I'm 
see more of that. What other house do you think is more caring than a Hufflepuff? Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, see? Um, mm-hmm. Fine. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty caring. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, Hagrid is a, is a Gryffindor, but I think right. that he has that strong sense of Hufflepuff. I just, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but now that you're saying it, that, that just really works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great loyalty to Dumbledore and to his friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, and uh, bravery, yeah. my goodness. He's raising a dragon in a wooden house. <laughs> or was that just stupidity? I don't not know. Not stupidity. It's, it's <laughs> both. You know. it's, it's not, or it's just pleasure. He just, he, I don't you know, even think he thinks twice adventure. about it. Yeah, exactly. It's the daring side of the Gryffindor. Yeah, it's, it's Gryffindor adventure. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, it's really whatever you want to call it. <laughs> what, do, what do you think working with dragons entails? I mean, you know, what do we think Charlie does? Well, remember that on Rowling's website, before it vanished, we had that Aww. little fragment of the Dragon Breeders book, and it had, you know, things about diseases that they get. And I can easily imagine that they're, because they want to keep them alive and thriving because of their place in the magical world, that they would be keeping them, you know, I mean, trying to keep them healthy and and things like that, because they can't just let them be completely free. It's like... It's like a species which is gone from the wild, but which it now exists only in a zoo. Well, in our world, I mean, I realize there still are wild dragons in Harry's world, but but it's that kind of a sense, I think, where that's what they're doing. They're taking care of these dragons and trying to make sure that they're going to be okay. How you- and also harvesting their blood. Well, yeah, there is that. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if there's some trouble there. And heartstrings, oh. apparently. Yeah. They're just being harvested for their blood and heartstrings. Dear me. Used well, and abused. I think only when they're, you know, died natural causes. I don't think they're out there slaughtering them. Well, I mean, Noah probably disagrees. I think that I would be willing to bet there are some out there that are doing that. Probably not the people like who, like, I don't who think are Charlie working with Charlie, is. but I think mm-hmm. you definitely have some like hunters out there. Oh, absolutely. Now, there's I mean, a job for you. Dragon <laughs> hunting. Hope that one of your uh, one of your perks with that job is a permanent bed at some mongos. You're right. That would be. Well, I mean, you can be treated with the blood that you get. I would like to I see mean... that show on Animal Planet. Can I just say that? <laughs> oh, dragon hunters. Dragon hunters. They're abusing dragons, cat. Can't believe you. Sheriff anyway. Noah. It's okay. Well, <laughs> and you know, Rowling actually wrote in in one of the Daily Prophet newsletters that there was a want ad from Gringotts looking for a dragon feeder. So. Apparently, dragon there's, drag, there's, there's dragon jobs to be had. Mm. I mean, we know about the dragon at the bottom of the at the bottom of Gringotts, mm-hmm. so we have some mistreatment right. of dragons already. Oh, it happens yeah. With, oh, yeah. with things that are, you know, big and, and uncontrollable. That breaks you my know, heart a little every time I, I see that scene yeah. in Deathly Hallows too. Oh, I know. How, how we'll have the dragons in cages and in, in Goblet of Fire. So, how many dragons do we'll we think are on this, you know, this sanctuary preserve? A lot, and isn't it interesting that like. There's, there's none of them are Romanian. They're all, you know, they have all these dragons that are other. When they come from in Goblet of Fire, they don't bring any Romanian dragons. They bring Hungarian horn tails and, you know, Chinese fireballs and all this stuff. Swedish, so how many different kinds yeah. of dragons are there on this reservation? Right, but there's a lot. And how do you keep them apart? Oh, all right, last boy. point. Last point because we're talking a lot. Why is Draco named for dragons? What is it about his character? I would say that it's more his parents' character. His parents' character? You think it's from his parents? Yeah, because they named him. 
They thought we wanted yeah, to but, be named after something powerfully I magical. I don't. Yeah, I mean that's possible. I and I just, but I just don't see him as very dragon-like. I don't. Hmm, I don't see any of those features really matching up. Well, of course, dragons originally were seen as serpents, not as lizards. And serpent is a sign oh, of Slytherin no, and a sign of evil. So. Oh. Yeah. But that's we're talking way back in mythology times. We're not talking about you know the dragons of this well, world. And I'm sure that's something that Rowling would be aware of. So mm-hmm. makes sense. So so I guess it could, you could you could imagine it as being a veiled Slytherin reference. Hey, that's you know that's something mm-hmm. that's something to think about. Thanks for that. So does that conclude our dragon discussion, guys? I think it does. I believe it does. Why don't you uh, tell us what the podcast question of the week is? Absolutely. So, Steve, I was really impressed by your uh, discussion about this magical, you know, connections among things and objects and the fact that Dumbledore can just kind of like quirk things and just kind of, you know, just stuff happens. It's almost in an unnatural sense, especially in Philosopher's Stone, stuff just, these amazing coincidences happen. And I'm sure you've, you know, kind of marked that throughout the entire series. But now I'd like to throw it to the fans. Uh, what do you guys, you know, think about this theory that there is a an essential magicness about everything in the in you know Harry's world that lets stuff happen? I mean, we know that Dumbledore, to an extent, controls a lot. But how much do you think he's controlling? And do you think there's you know some force at at work here? Not like the force in Star Wars, but you know some kind of some kind of energy. I know this is kind of a, a, an abstract question, but you know, is there? Do we find meaning of like religion in here? Some kind of re- religion politics here, like working stuff, or is it just something essential in magical objects that they will naturally uh, control stuff and make things happen, like the cloak or uh, any of the Deathly Hollows or the stone? Uh, so fate, fate and destiny play a lot too. So I guess my my final wrap up of the question is, uh, you know, this magical universe that corresponds to the real universe is it doing it? Making stuff happen in the plot, or is it Dumbledore? Um, uh, rest assured, when uh, I write up the post on a low more, it'll be a more like simplified, concise, question. but just, just think about <laughs> all that. more concise, right? But yeah, I'm interested to see what we get out of that. Very good. And uh, and Steve, for, thanks for bringing it up, and you know, you did you did write a bit about it. A bit. I've written quite a bit about it. Actually, <laughs> I've written a whole book about it, but. Yeah, we can we can put some links in our show notes to your various stuff you're working on. Okay. And on that note, we do just want to sum up by saying thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. It's definitely been a pleasure. Um, oh, I know having someone that I know I've visited your site, I can't imagine how many times over the years. So it's very great to have such an expert on the show with us. Oh, it's great fun. I mean, there's nothing better than big having these de- discussions of canon and of of uh, this amazing world and it just shows you again the depth of of Rowling's creation that we can spend all this time talking about these few chapters and few little details and feel like there, we could go on for another five hours you know <laughs> yeah uh, we yeah. definitely could too <laughs> and just to clarify we know that the magical world doesn't actually exist I mean, speak, speak for, for yourself, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I know that okay well I'm, so, I had a muffliato on. I didn't hear what you said. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, so if any of you listening want to be on the show, like Steve, um, there's two ways you can go about doing that. The first one is submitting content on the Alohomora website, which is at alohomora.mugglenet.com, or also on the forums. Uh, we do look at that. We do read them, and we comment constantly. So 
You know, if you put more comments on there, you're more likely to be noticed. We also have personal forums, right? Each of us has personal forums where listeners can go in and talk to us directly and have little conversations where we're kind of ruling the thing or leading the discussions there. That's true. And the second way to be on the show is to send um, an audio clip of yourself um, analyzing a portion of the book. You can send it to alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. Just please note that you do need to have appropriate audio equipment because, you know, we need to be able to hear you and so do the fans listening to the show afterwards. And if you just want to contact or stay in touch with us in general, make sure you're following us on Twitter. Um, you can find us at M, as in muggle and as in net. Actually, it's important that you do follow us on Twitter if you're going to LeakyCon because um, all four of the main hosts are going. And we're going to be doing some special stuff. Like, you know, and you may want to follow our Twitter updates because there might be some, there might be some challenges that we might be posing to listeners if they happen to be at the conference, but no more about that just now. Also, you can make sure you follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore, uh, like our page, and you can listen to us right now on that page by clicking on the podcast tab and choosing an episode and enjoying it. And also make sure you see us on mnalohamora.tumblr.com and of course our main page, alohamora.mugglenet.com. And as we've already mentioned, our Gmail account, Podcast at gmail.com. And just once again, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. We're doing really well. I mean, we're tops in arts and uh, literature podcasts. Thanks to all of you. Right. And we love it when you guys review us because, you know, that goes out out to everybody. So keep continuing to do that. And uh, thank you, Steve Vanderark, for being on this episode. It was really great talking to you. A pleasure to be here. And, uh, yeah, come on again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Really would. All right. That about wraps up the show. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Why does gold have this magical, like, impossible thing to create? You know what I'm saying? Like, why is it seems as if then that this value is inherent to the magical world and that it's like really, really valuable when we know that gold is really just another kind of um, another kind of stone. Why is it divine here? Uh, that that's kind of a you know I'm talking about it kind of sillyly, but I'm I'm just saying like why is it why is it so impressive that you can make something into gold when when the value of gold is kind of arbitrary? for humans. Oh. Did we uh did we drop? Oh god. I'm just going to start talking to myself. Yep. All right. I'll see you guys later. Was are you sleeping? But I'm talking so loudly.